Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, July 25th, 843-661093. Our number, there's still just only Josh and I. Rev is still in Florida tending to his mom. I texted with him a couple of times yesterday. And, um, I mean, she's had a lot of birthdays. I'll just leave it there. She said um, more than her fair share of birthdays. And and, and I, I, Josh, when you've been away from the factory as long as she has, Mm-hmm. complications ensue and it's just it is what it is and i guess you know i didn't deal with parents getting old both of my parents died in their early 60s so i didn't have the ah the dilemma the dynamic of watching parents get extremely old and feeble and not able to care for themselves and uh, especially when they're in another state you know it's a little different if your parent has gotten older uh your spouse has gotten real old and they're um, you know, once again, all those birth- birthdays have taken a toll and you can ride right down the street or you can go across town, but having to go from, um, from South Carolina to Florida complicates it even more. Um, I did text with him yesterday and, um, I'll let him, you know, say what he chooses to say, but, um, anyway, let's, uh, let's keep Rev and his family in our prayers. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. our number. Um, I don't know that we can begin this show. Uh, by talking about anything other than uh, the Biden family. And it seems to me, I mean, it, we're, we're being inundated now. I mean, even in mainstream media. I mean, I made a point yesterday to watch some CNN to go to the Washington Post and New York Times. I mean, they're doing it as protective as they can. But we have a major, major scandal, maybe the biggest scandal in modern American political history, if some of these things are true. Now, now once again, there, there are, there's a lot of smoke here, Josh. There's an incredible amount of smoke. I don't have any idea how much fire there is. Uh, I do believe, and I've said it consistently, um, I've asked one simple question, uh, how did the Bidens get wealthy? And I think we're beginning to see how the Bidens um, got wealthy. There, there's kind of an interesting opinion out there now of some. Uh, I didn't, uh, this opinion didn't originate with me, but I may ascribe uh, to this opinion. There's an opinion out there now that once Biden got reelected vice president on the Obama ticket, he knew the political career was nearing an end. I mean, he'd never, you can't play that card of being president one day. I think Biden knew he was in the winter of a political career. Um, he knew that his better days were in the rearview mirror. He knew that he was aging, probably not as well as some age. And I think, uh, and I, I've kind of I, I subscribed to this opinion. I think that, he told Hunter, let's make all we can make. I mean, let's hmm. do all we can. Um, you know, the president, Obama's a young guy, right? I mean, there was no doubt he was going to have a lucrative post-presidency uh, when you talk about money and speeches and sitting on boards and whatnot. I mean, in all honesty, Obama is probably the most marketable former president we've ever had. Yeah. Speeching engagements. Um, you know, wherever, I mean, I I don't have any idea what he's made. I mean, you know, the rights to tell a story, you know, from Simon and Schuster, some of these major uh, printing houses, you just had to believe that a guy as charismatic as, uh, and, and transformative as he was. Now, once again, not a big fan, but, but I got to give, uh, I would say the devil is due, but I'd get in trouble if I said, you got to give <laughs> a guy's due. Um, you know, you got to give, uh, he was unbelievably talented in the field of, um, in the field still is in the field of politics. So when, when Obama gets reelected in 2012, yeah, 2008, 2012, 
when he gets reelected in 2012, there's a, there's a mindset out there or an opinion out there that Joe Biden saw that as his last hurrah. Where do I go from? I'm not Obama. I mean, I'm not, you know, there's, there's, there's no chance that I am as marketable as Obama is. There's mo- more, no, there's zero chance that my post political life is going to be as financially lucrative as Barack Obama and kind of went to Hunter and said, Hey, you know, all these things we've done over the years accelerate. I mean, let's do more of those. Let's um, kind of a no holes barred approach. Now, once again, I don't know that that's the truth, but there's some opinions out there from credible sources or credible people. And they kind of, um, they kind of believe that it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're an older guy, you've been to the Senate all your life. You've, um, you've done more than you, you know, let's say, let's say up until Biden becoming the vice president, his career was centered, uh, similar to Mitch McConnell. Remember Joe said yesterday, you're not hearing much out of one of the most prominent Republicans in America because his closet is probably full of skeletons as well. But I mean, there's no telling how many of these sorts of things Mitch McConnell is doing over the years. I don't know that, but McConnell didn't run for president. McConnell can, I mean, he's going to have some degree of scrutiny without, without question. And he has at times when we talk about McConnell's wife and her, you know, her arrangements, um, she was in the Trump administration. She has some, uh, significant and entailed Chinese business dealings, business slash political, political dealings, but McConnell was not vice president. McConnell never ran for president. So hypothetically, Josh, if you're Joe Biden, and you look across the White House, and Barack Obama sits over there, and it's 2012, and you look at the, you know, your your birth date, and you look at his, and you say, he's, I mean, this guy's not going to have any problem making a lot of money after being president of the United States. How am I going to do it? I'm not going to be a senator. I'm not going to be a vice president. I'm not a real interesting, talented, smart guy. I mean, everything I've ever done is kind of sort of political prostitution and thuggery. So if I'm not in politics, if I'm not a senator, if I'm not the vice president, what do I have to offer? Very little. Very little. So he goes to Hunter Biden and he says, son, this is kind of our last four years. Let's do all we can. I mean, let's do everything we can. And, and you know, I you got to believe that Biden didn't consider himself. Well, I mean, he's the vice president, but he's in his seventies. I mean, he's, in, he he's in a his... seventy-year old. Well, he's an eighty-year-old man now, right? So in 08, he would have been what sixty-five. Uh, no, in two twelve, and so so in twenty sixteen, Joe Biden is ah, that would have been eight years ago. He's seventy-two years old. Right. Uh, Trump gets elected, so Biden knows that he's going to be 76. And I mean, I don't know that we noticed a significant cognitive issue at that time, but I mean, whether it's got a cognitive issue or not, I mean, I think it's, uh, he probably had some of that probably, I mean, nowhere near as much as he has now. I mean, I think he has episodes now where he's completely and totally incoherent. I mean, -hmm. I don't think it's every second of every day, but I think there are periods of time during every day of his life when he's kind of out of it. And, and I guess, you know, they medicate and cycle and, and, and get him somewhere to take a nap or, or rest. Or, I, don't, I don't know how they handle that. But, but every now and then, if they get off schedule and if there's a, in some impromptu moment, I mean, it's obvious he can get completely disoriented. I mean, I'm talking about losing his way, 
you know, I, I, I forgot. I, I, you know, I, I turned left, supposed to turn right. No, I'm talking about completely and totally incoherent, as if he were to be medicated but was not. But let's let's argue that he had none of that. In 2018, when the DNC starts considering who to run against Donald Trump, because Hillary's gone, right? I mean, she's the heir apparent. I mean, she was the heir apparent in 08, but Obama beat her. So, so in 12, you know, Obama gets to be reelected. So Biden's riding the Obama coattail in mm-hmm. 8 and 12. 16 comes along. Uh, the Clintons are still, you know, not the rock stars of the party. That's Obama. But they're still next level. But they're not the opening act for anybody, right? I mean, the, uh, the Clintons are very accomplished. Uh, she was a secretary of state and a senator from New York. He was a former uh, two, two-time elected president, still kind of a darling of the party. That, that would be a better – Obama's a rock star. Clinton would have been the darling of the party. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the difference is Clinton knew Bubba and Obama. Obama didn't. So you get to 16, Trump wins, upsets Hillary, right? I mean, Joe Biden's got to figure there's no place for him. I mean, you got, you got Obama in, in 08, Obama in 12. And then you've got Hillary in 16. I mean, there, there's no I mean, there, there's no time at the end of the calendar for, for Joe Biden. He's 72 years old. I mean, you know, and, and I, I, is he going to waste away in Delaware? Um, and, and along comes the pandemic and along comes a lot of unusual things that probably have never happened before in American politics, and he gets the call. I mean, he gets the call from somebody at some point in time. And, I mean, I think Biden knew that, that you know, I mean, we've heard Obama. Don't underestimate Joe's ability to blank things up. You know, Obama didn't hold Joe in high regard. Uh, Obama needed kind of a, a Northeast white liberal to normalize his ticket. Um, I mean, he couldn't, Obama couldn't have gone out and, and appointed K- K- Kamala Harris or chosen Kamala Harris. As his VP, I mean that wouldn't have flown. He knew that. I mean, it's David Axelrod and and those who give him advice. They knew that the safest bet was to go, with, you know, to Delaware, find a guy that had been there forever, kind of a known commodity. Labor unions kind of liked him. They were comfortable with him. He knew his way around Washington. He brought a little bit of foreign policy experience to the table, and it worked. VP twelve. I mean, an eight VP in twelve uh, takes a pass in sixteen. Hillary wins the nomination, um, and then in twenty twenty. He's nearly dead on the vine. I mean, the Rev still believes that he didn't qualify in Iowa, that there's some provision that disqualifies you if you don't meet a certain threshold in Iowa. And, um, you know, but but uh, Jim Clyburn kind of re- resurrects his career and, um, and the pandemic hits and the media and DOJ and FBI and Twitter and Facebook and, you know, the media in general all kind of um, choose sides and they kind of nurse him across the finish line so to speak. But I think Joe Biden believes that was as unlikely as we believe. I think Joe Biden was caught off guard. You mean to tell me, guys, you want me to stay in the basement? Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Don't raise any money. Uh, You'll do all that for me. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying, Joe. I mean, if there's a negative story about your son's laptop, we'll handle it. I'm a DOJ, FBI. You know, we'll handle it. Uh, If there's an IRS investigation into your son's business dealings, we'll handle it. We just don't need Trump to be reelected because there's too much at stake. And and that's kind of a reasonable theory here, that, that once he left the White House or the Office of Vice Presidency in 2016, in other words, Trump gets sworn in in 2016, uh, that would have been 2017. So we're a year later. Trump wins in 16, gets sworn in in 17. 
Uh, Biden's no longer uh, a political figure. And I just think there, there's some validity to that argument that Biden believed this is our last hurrah. In other words, call Hunter. Hunter, how much money do we have? He called his brother, called these family. I don't know. Uh, how much money have we made over the years? We made a lot, Daddy. How much have we spent? Nearly all of it. Remember, we bought the house formerly owned by the DuPonts. Remember, we got this beach house in Delaware. You bought this Corvette. Uh, we, we've got all these, you know, um, we got all these LLCs and offshore bank accounts. Got a little bit of money in, uh, you know, your grandkids' names and your brother's name. And but I mean, there's just not enough to go around. You know, well, let's do all we can now to, to get all the money we can. And opens the spigots, um, gets very aggressive in making some of these deals and arrangements toward the end of his term as vice presidency. And I mean, I think that's when it happened. I think at some point in time during his term as vice president, Biden realized that the likelihood of him having a, you know, um, another act or episode of a political career was slim to none. And he kind of told Hunter to put the foot on the gas pedal and let's do everything we can to drum up as much money as we can in the name of, you know, whatever kind of business you're running over the Hunter. I don't know anything. Remember, he doesn't know anything about Hunter's business. He's never talked to Hunter's. Um, and tell me, guys, uh, you know, who told you three weeks ago that the terminology had changed? The black lesbian said it again yesterday. Joe Biden has never been in business with his son. I mean, for years, it was Joe Biden doesn't know anything about his son's business dealings. Now it's Joe Biden has never been in business with it. That, that's the, I mean, that's the twist now. I can assure you we'll hear that over and over and over again because Devin Archer is going to testify that Joe Biden um, multiple dozens of times picked up the phone or was teleconferenced in to a meeting that Hunter was having with some of these foreign nationals. Now, Devin Archer's a, a shady character, uh, but he's Hunter Biden's partner. I mean, I'll just leave it there. Um, it seems like Democrats dig their own graves when they do this because it's always like there's suspicion about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And it's not like, well, you know, it's it's we don't want to comment on an open investigation. It's always there is no correlation or the covid definitely does this or definitely doesn't do that. The vaccine definitely doesn't do this. It's never let's wait for something to come out. Well, I mean, they control the narrative. Exactly. And they know they control the narrative so they can be as aggressive as they choose. I mean, who's going to, I mean, do you really believe if Biden, well, let's use, um, yeah, Biden would have been, uh, let's, let's think of Fauci. I mean, if Fauci had come out and said um, emphatically, as he did, you know, here's what needs to be done. I'm sure that this is what needs to be done. W what if the media challenged him? See, Fauci knew the media wouldn't challenge him. I mean, he knew that was, I mean, he was in good graces. He's, um, you know, he's a lifer in the bureaucracies. He probably has uh, hundreds, thousands of connections within the media and, and the government. So, so when Fauci, I mean, he knew that he wouldn't run into much resistance at all. Now, you know, and then that would be a mistake that Trump made in trusting Fauci or taking Fauci at his word. If I'm running against Trump in a Republican primary, I mean, there are two people I'm pointing to. Christopher Ray and, and Anthony Fauci. You know, thank you, Donald Trump, for introducing America to Anthony Fauci, introducing America to Christopher um, Ray. I mean, Ray was a Bush, excuse me, a, a Trump appointee. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it would have been different if Biden would have said, you know, my son 
has a kind of an interesting political, an interesting business life that I know very little about. I mean, I've told you before, Josh, when you took this job and you would put things out there as a matter of fact, I would say, Josh, I don't know that I would say it that way. Give mm-hmm. yourself a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, you, you would put things out like 32,000 this or 27,000. And I would say, no, say in excess or somewhere in the neighborhood of 32,000, because there may be a report that contradicts that number. Uh, we're reading something that says, you know, uh, 32,000 people voted in Pennsylvania that should not have voted. And and you you recount that. But but then a day later, somebody says, no, the number's really 27,000 or the number's 37,000. But if you've argued that the number's approximately 32,000 or it's in the neighborhood of 32,000, you've not kind of pinned yourself down to that one cold, hard fact. And I've just learned in politics, never, unless you're, I mean, unless it's mandatory. I mean, never pin yourself down to that one hard number because there may be a a corresponding report that says the number, and it may be more credible than the one you just read, that said, no, no, the number's closer to to this other number. But, But, yeah, if Biden had said, but I think he gets some reprieve had he said, you know, my son has a very complicated life. I mean, he's fought addiction all of his life. He's got into these businesses. I don't know much about those businesses. Have we ever talked about it? I mean, you could imagine a father and son talk about a lot of things. There's kind of a squishy answer there. He's left room. So so when the report does come down, uh, but he didn't do that. I mean, he emphatically denied. I know nothing. I have never, to your point, I have never discussed my son's business dealings with him. Well, now the black lesbian is saying that Joe Biden has never been in business with his son. I mean, they know that some of these reports are credible. They know that some of these um, accounts are going to be corroborated, and Devin Archer is going to be somebody. And it goes back to what I said yesterday. Um, I mean, if you've been married and divorced one time, might be your fault, might be hers. If you've been married and divorced twice, might be yours, might be hers. Three, four, five, six marriages. At some point in time, you got to look in the mirror. And we got all this smoke. We've got RS whistleblowers. We've got FBI agents. We've got a 1023. We've got a business partner now. We've got a foreign national. We got a confidential human source. I mean, is everybody lying except Joe Biden? I mean, is everybody on the periphery just fundamentally dishonest? And Joe Biden is the beacon of trustworthiness. I mean, that's what he's asking you to believe, right? I mean, don't believe the FBI informant. Don't believe the IRS whistleblowers. Don't believe Hunter Biden's business partner. Don't believe the former CEO of Burisma. Don't believe the prosecutor. Don't believe anybody. Because they're all a bunch of liars trying to take down me. I'm the only truthful um, arbiter in this entire, um, you know, scenario. And I just think that's absurd. I think people are smarter than that. I mean, you got 10, 12, 15 people over here corroborating stories, recounting events. And you've got Joe Biden over here saying, I'm telling the truth. Everybody else over there is telling a lie. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. I've never spoken to my son about drugs. And so how do you know? Let's, let's how talk, you look, know? Here's what I know. I know Trump deserves to be investigated. He is violating every basic norm of a president. You should be asking him the question, why is he on the phone with a foreign leader trying to intimidate a foreign leader, if that's what happened. That appears what happened. You should be looking at Trump. Trump's doing this because he knows I'll beat him like a drum. And he's using the abuse of power and every element of the the presidency to try to do something 
to smear me. Everybody looked at this, and everybody's looked at it and said there's nothing there. Ask the right question. See, and I'm going to be saying, to your point, Josh, how emphatically, you know, 100% denying he is of, of anything. You should be looking at Trump. Now, now it's their, that's their strategy. The what about is, what about Trump? I mean, what about Trump? What about Trump? Trump did this. Trump did Trump did that. Well, I mean, Trump's indicted twice, impeached. I mean, he'll probably be indicted another couple of times. He's been impeached twice. Um, I mean, to, to suggest that Donald Trump has not been investigated for whatever it is he's ever done in his political life. I mean, is he arguing that, that Trump gets a pass? I mean, Donald Trump has been treated differently than any president ever, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I don't know what Andrew Jackson dealt with because we didn't have a modern media and modern, you know, a media infrastructure. We didn't have talk radio. And I, I don't have any idea how Andrew Jackson would have been treated in today's world. Probably similar to Trump because there were similar dispositions there. But, but you're right. I mean, the, the, the denying, the emphatic denial about any of this and all of this and every, every aspect of this. And I don't want to play psychoanalysis. I mean, I, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. But something about his voice, that the aggressiveness in his voice, when he begins denying this, it's how dare you. I mean, how dare you? It's, it's not. I mean, and, and look, He's shaking. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, it sounds different. It's not. I didn't do this. I'm an honorable man. It's how dare you challenge me? How do you not know who I am? I mean, I've been in this city since the mid seventies. I've earned my keep. I've carried the water for the Democrats. I've carried the water for some of these committees and subcommittees. Um, how dare you challenge me? No matter what I choose to do or not. Now, once again, I'm not a, you know, I'm that psychoanalysis and I'm not capable clinically or professionally to do that, but it sounds the denial in his voice sounds different than somebody who historically or traditionally says, I didn't do it. I mean, I didn't do that. I'm being accused of something I didn't do. It's a little bit like, how dare you accuse me of something that I that I didn't do? Well, I mean, I think we're beginning to find out now that he did do a lot of these things. Um, and, and, I, and I go back to the, the odds of probability. I mean, what, is, what are the odds that IRS whistleblowers are out to get Joe Biden? I mean, what, what are the odds that a confidential human source is out to get Joe Biden? What are the odds that an FBI informant is out to get Joe Biden? Um, now we're finding out, I think the Federalist reported this morning, that um, the FBI Pittsburgh office said the 1023 could be corroborated and needed to be further investigated. And they're wondering if the DOJ began to really tamp down uh, their pursuit. I mean, that's a new story out today. It's the Federalist, which is a right-leaning um, conservative website. But But, you know, is everybody lying? I mean, if you're... If you're singing in the choir and you're singing off key, are you singing in key and everybody else is off key? Or are you singing off key and the other hundred members of the choir are singing, you know, on key? I mean, that, that's the argument he's trying to make. And and once again, I think some of the um some of the premise of Biden believed that his political career was over in twenty sixteen. And he knew that it was about time to ride off into the sunset. And he probably did a review of his financial you know, affairs and said, we need more money. So let's go to work. Uh, and this would have been during the, the vice presidency. Uh, I doubt he did much of this post-vice presidency. This would have been during the time he was vice president. And I think, you know, that's probably the most fundamental decision he's made. I mean, in 12, when he gets reelected, here, here's a fair question. When Biden gets reelected in 12, he knows Hillary's there. 
right? And Hillary's going to probably get the nomination in 16. Nobody saw Trump coming, so you, you probably think that that um, Hillary's going to run against uh, John Kasich or Jeb Bush or somebody like that. But the world turned upside down when Trump gets there and the Republican voters supported uh, Trump in record numbers. But but if Biden's there in, let's say he's in the Naval Observatory, that's the residence of the, uh, the vice president, and in comes his son, in comes his brother, in comes, you know, two or three other family members, the members of that that Biden cartel, and they gather up, and they kind of, kind of, once again, as I said earlier, they say, "Hey, man, the guy in the White House is going to be fine. He's a young guy. He's charismatic. He's transformative. He's going to make a lot of money when he leaves the White House. I mean, his payday is yet to come. How are we going to keep our heads above water? What value do we bring to any financial arrangement? I mean, none of us have ever been in business, right? I mean, the only business we've ever been in is me being a senator." And me being a vice president. Well, I'm no longer a senator, and I've got three more years as vice president, and then I'm done. So we better get all we can get while the getting is good. I mean, that, once again, that's just that, it's not my theory. It didn't originate with me. I read it yesterday in a couple of places, and it's a very interesting theory to offer up. And then the phone rings in 16. Just give me the phone rings at 18. Joe, we got to beat this Trump guy. I mean, we you know, our, our, our bench is weak. Because, you know, Obama was such a dominating figure. Um, Hillary can't win because nobody likes her. Her likabilities are in the tank. People still kind of like you, Joe. I mean, they, they can relate to you being, you know, Obama's vice president. That gives you some, some street care with the African-Americans. You know, the, the first African-American president chose you to be the guy that, that ran with him. Um, so, you know, and, and I don't, I don't have any idea. Does somebody tell them, whoever they are, I guess the, uh, the, do, the Democrat donor, class to somebody tell them beforehand, Hey, Joe's got some issues, but he slipped a good bit in the last four years. And we, yeah, but I mean, we got a pandemic. We've got, we'll put him in the basement. You know, he wants to run a campaign. I, I just think those are things you got to consider. And, and I, I just, I, it makes more sense to me for that theory than any other theory I've heard. That's why you've got all these revelations that have happened. They got a little careless. Um, you know, I fired the SOB or they fired the S son of a gun. They fired the SOB, you know, and, and that's just, that's careless. I mean, that's, um, that, that goes beyond arrogance. I mean, there, there's one thing about being arrogant, but that is, I mean, that blows arrogance out of the water and goes straight into this, um, this, this world of, uh, you know, just like careless and reckless. And, uh, and, and I, you, once again, let, let, let's, let's say this again, Josh, if there are a hundred people in the band and one person singing out of key and the other 99 are singing in sync with one another, who's, I mean, is everybody else out of key? I mean, is that the argument you're going to make? I mean, we were sitting in G flat. I'm, I'm, I'm in G minor, you know, but everybody else is out of key. I mean, that, that's what he's starting to ask you to believe. No, nobody else is believable. Um, and the media will, will say things like, you know, um, well, the, the, the IRS whistleblowers are probably hacks and the 1023 confidential, uh, the document, the FBI, uh, archived or memorialized, you know, that guy had some skeletons in his closet and, you know, the Burisma CEO and the, the Ukrainian prosecutor and, and now Devin Archer, he's in a, um, in a bond scandal. Um, but Hunter Biden was involved in that, but he was involved in that. And it's just, it, it's hard for me to believe that the Democrats will continue to defend him. 
I mean, it really and truly is. I, I said it yesterday, and I'll say it again. Over, I don't know, over the last 10 days, something has happened in the DNC that leads me to believe they're about ready to dump uh, Joe Biden. That They believe these stories are too uh, believable. Uh, there, there's going to be too much information. I don't know if you saw this or not, but James Comer said yesterday that he would rather not have a special counsel. He would rather the oversight committee be in charge of the investigation because he doesn't want Merrick Garland appointing a special counsel because he thinks that'll be political favoritism and they'll never get to the bottom of it. That's interesting that the chair of an oversight committee would say no to a special counsel. I mean, the first time the chair of an oversight committee normally says when he thinks there are some uh, improprieties is let's get a special counsel. Let's get an independent special counsel appointed to go, you know, find out the truth, the whole truth, and nothing uh, but the truth. But Comer says, I would rather be in charge of the investigation. Now, once again, Comer's a Republican. There's no doubt about it. Comer would probably be as aggressive as anybody in trying to bring Joe Biden down. I mean, if Jim Comer's footnote in history is to have brought an American president to his knees, I mean, that's, you know, you get statues built for you. You get portraits in hallways when you do those sorts of things. But Comer's providing facts. Right? I mean, did, were, were those two IRS agents ghost? No, they're real people. Is Devin Archer a ghost? Is the confidential human source a ghost? No, I mean, th these are real people. You've got to determine how believable you think they are. You want to jump in there, Josh? Well, I mean, I was going to say, I think that the Democrats bet on the wrong horse. Because I remember back when the Democratic primaries were going on, you know, in the the, Demo the Democrat debates, Joe Biden seemed to me like to someone who's, you know, a low information voter, perhaps a the obvious choice, you know, former VP. He and he seemed fairly cognizant at the time. But I think they just he went way downhill and they're kind of and that's why I think you're right, because they're like, oh, we we kind of messed up. OK, but I think you can, if he's let, let's say he is in. I mean, I think most people would agree to this. I mean, if you're honest, uh, he's in cognitive decline. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, most people in their 80s are in cognitive decline. He's in a very accelerated state of cognitive decline. So if you take that, Josh, but he doesn't have all these scandals, you may try to endure. Mm -hmm. Because Trump has a lot of, I mean, Trump has high negatives. Trump's unfavorabilities are high. So you still play in politics here. It's still about math. So, so if Biden was in significant cognitive decline, as he is, but didn't have these scandals, the Democrats may still roll the dice and mm -hmm. say, hey, given Trump's high negatives and high unfavorables, we still think we can beat him with Biden. But I mean, that's crazy. But, but I think when you combine the cognitive decline with the scandal after scandal after scandal, witness after witness after witness, I'm corroborating evidence after corroborating evidence after. I mean, we've got bank records. We've got LLCs. Nobody knows what the Bidens do. We've got art sales now. If you saw this or not, there's a story out today that one of the appointees bought a lot of Hunter Biden's art. I mean, she yep. would be one of these Democratic elites, but she bought a bunch of the art. And, and now we're wondering whether that was an exchange. And that goes back to my belief that Biden said, let's get all we can. I mean, we're nearing the end here, and, 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 you know, we don't have enough money to do everything we want to do. Let's get all we can. And, and you get aggressive and you get careless. And when you're, when you're practicing political thuggery, I mean, it's what you do. It's who you are. 
And I think it is who they are and what they do. But I still believe, Josh, to your point, if they, if Biden's issue was simply and only cognitive decline, they would roll the dice. That they, they would take a chance. They probably wouldn't debate. That they would take a chance on Trump's high unfavorables and high negatives. I want to ask, though, because I'm kind of curious about this now that now that I think about it. I wonder, you know, we're in conservative talk radio, so we're constantly looking at this information and, and taking all this kind of information in about these stories. But what, like the kind of the Seinfeld watcher or your average Democrat, how much of this are they actually getting exposed to? Because as, as you've pointed out many times, the, these big Hunter Biden breaks in the story come out and MSNBC, CNN, they well, don't even talk about but it. But it's not going to change the Democrat. It's the independents. Remember, we talked about these 250,000, 500,000 people in 28 counties in about five states. I mean, that, that's the target audience. I mean, the electoral college politics is all about that. I mean, it's all about, excuse me, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, Wisconsin. I mean, Georgia should be red. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if, we, if we've solidified or fortified some of the, uh, some of the voting in, in Georgia, Georgia will be red. I mean, it doesn't matter what Trump's unfavorables are. I mean, it, Georgia will be red if they've addressed some of the issues. Um, but, but you go to independent Pennsylvania, independent Wisconsin, independent Michigan, independent Arizona, independent um, Nevada. I mean, that, that's where the votes are. What, what, what are those voters inclined to do? And I think they're not inclined to vote for a guy they believe is in cognitive decline but is also a part of scandal after scandal after scandal. You're not going to change the Democrats' mind. I mean, they believe this is a witch hunt. They, they think Trump was treated more fairly than, than Biden. You know that's better. I mean, you know better than that, and I know better than that. But, I mean, the Democrats are the Democrats are the Democrats. I mean, that, there's a reason they're Democrats. The independent voter is who I'm talking about in these 28 counties that Trump has to do better in than he did in 2020. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. We have with us this morning political strategist with over 20 years' experience in government and politics as a Washington insider. Um, she began her career in 1991 in what is now called the White House Office of Public Engagement. Terry Hasdorf. Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks so, so much. So I have tried to convince myself that the the nominating of Donald Trump as Republican nominee for president is not inevitable. That's bad for my business. I need there to be a hotly contested primary and somebody to come out of nowhere and show a serious challenge in Iowa or South Carolina. But, but Terry, the data doesn't show that. I mean, I understand it's not inevitable. There are a lot of unknowns and anything can happen. But Trump has clearly solidified himself as the obvious front runner. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, you know, you're looking at a 30-point lead right now. So it's still early. Like you said, there's there's still a lot that can happen. But at this point, uh, that's a that's a huge gap between him and the other candidates. But is it fair to say, when we say anything can happen, and I've heard comparisons of Trump was at 4% in 2015, and uh, by the time and Jeb Bush was at, but Trump is a known commodity. I mean, I got to believe that if you're a Republican primary voter, you're either for or you ain't. And and for him to be at 46, 48 in Iowa and South Carolina, I got to be honest. I mean, I, I'm a South Carolina. It surprises me. I figured he would be 35, 36, maybe, but 46 or seven or eight surprise. What what? Why is he higher than some of us who think we know what we're talking about? Thought he would be at this time. 
Well, you know, economic issues are seeming to be the number one thing that are on the voters' minds right now. And that's where Trump really stands out from the pack. He has really put forward things that resonate with voters. Uh, You know, people stand in line uh, in the rain for (laughs) hours to hear Trump speak. They don't do that with the other candidates. So he really has set himself apart. Well, I believe he could win the Republican primary from a prison cell. I don't know about the general election. I mean, what does that say about where we are as a party? I mean, I'm a, I'm a Republican, former office holder as a Republican, but what does that say about the party when we seem to be, I don't, I don't want to say that loyal, but that committed to one candidate? Yeah, I think it really does come down to, you know, it's that it's the economy stupid uh, all over again because, you know, voters are concerned about the economic issues, and that's where Trump leads with a lot of uh, his his background and experience as well as uh, what he is, is saying in, in his campaign speeches. So I think that's really where people are the most concerned. Biden's approval ratings are at a near record low uh, with only 37 percent approving of his handling of the economy. So that's that's what it's going to resonate with the voters around. So what would you I mean, you're a former political strategist or still a political strategist. What advice would you give to a Ron DeSantis, a a Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, how do you cut through the clutter to um to, to, to make it a more competitive race? Well, you got to tell us what you're going to do for us. I think a lot of the a lot of the noise that you know is being created, uh, people are not hearing what it is that's going to make these candidates stand out from the pack, and so that's what they're going to have to do. They've got to differentiate themselves. He here's the the question that concerns me most, and I'd love to get your I mean, I'm not a professional. I'm a former office holder with a big mouth who hosts a, a radio show. But but a, a strategist would have to always consider, and we talked to Drew McKissick, our state chair, every Thursday morning, and he's co-chair of the National Party, and he buys into this mm-hmm. argument that you've got Republican voters who aren't voting for anybody not named Trump. You've got some Republican voters who would never, under any circumstance, vote for a guy named Trump. H- how do we How do we navigate that complexity? Well, it, it, it's very hard because right now, you know, the party is, is fractured in some ways with this. So you've got you've got a lot of division and that's that can't happen. You've got to have people rally behind one candidate. And so, you know, whatever happens with the primaries, um, the Republican Party as a whole is going to have to come behind one candidate, even if it's not the one that, that they, they want the most. But at, at this point, um, I, I would say that it, it's looking like it's going to be Trump. Terry, can Trump help with that? I mean, I hear people say, man, I wish he would do this, and I wish he would he would do that. I, I argue, well, forget that. I mean, he's not going to tone it down. He's not going to pump the brakes. He's going to, I mean, he's going to continue to be a controversial political figure, but can he help heal that divide? Well, I think any candidate can. You know, it's really a question of uh, how you how you come across and address things, and um, he has shown that he can uh, – pivot in some ways or tone, tone things down. I think, you know, uh, there are ways that, that he has come into a different way of, of addressing the public um, compared to how he was when he first started running for office. But, uh, you know, it's it's like a, anything else. It's a process. Very well explained. Terry, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. And, and, I, and I, you know, I said it yesterday, and I'll, I'm surprised at the numbers. I mean, I, I really am. And I don't buy into the comparison of, you know, this could be like the Jeb Bush, Donald Trump. No, Trump is a known commodity. I mean, you're, you're not scratching your head today wondering whether you like this guy or not. 
Right, Josh? I mean, either you do or you don't. I know those that do. I know those that don't. They're not inclined to change their mind. Right. I, I mean, don't imagine very many people on the fence no, I mean, at it, this point. Not, not with Trump. I mean, you may be on the right. fence with Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or Vivek Ramaswamy or Chris Crump. I mean, I get that. I mean, you're you're just, you're, you're kind of a um, you're never-Trumper, and you're deciding amongst the others who is, you know, gives you the best chance to be. I get that. But, but I, I, I mean, if you're for Trump and you're still for Trump, you're going to be for Trump. I mean, I, I, just, I don't know anything that could scare a Trump voter away from, um, from Donald Trump today. Here's an interesting nugget of information, then we'll get to our, um, our call. Mitt Romney decided to write an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal today. Um, not about baseball cats and hot dogs. What a goofball. I mean, it really is an embarrassment that he was the nominee of our party. The last nominee of our party was he and John McCain. I mean, at least McCain was a war hero. Uh, Romney's just, ah, why? Anyway, um, not the kind of guy I want leading the party. But, but at a moment in history when we have a president with apparent difficulties of the opposite party, I mean, we've got RS whistleblowers, we've got um, confidential human sources, we've got business partners, we've got, uh, I mean, we've, we've got a multitude of people saying that the Bidens are crooks. Mitt Romney writes an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal that's in this morning's digital edition of how to beat Donald Trump. Not how to beat Joe Biden. I mean, he doesn't mention Biden. I mean, he's a Republican senator from Utah, former Republican nominee for president. And at this moment in history, when a Democrat president has never been on the ropes like this president is, Mitt Romney chooses to write an op-ed on how to stop Donald Trump from being the nominee. He's never been a Republican. If he's a Republican, I don't want to be a Republican. I mean, in all honesty, I can tolerate John McCain. I don't, I don't, John McCain's policies were a mixed bag to me. Uh, I think he was too much of a hawk, uh, too much of a, uh, an open border Republican, but I can tolerate because he did serve country and served admirably. I can't, I mean, I don't want to be in a party with Mitt Romney. I'm going to oh, the big tent, the big tent. Well, it ain't that big for me. I'm sorry. I think he's a goofball. I think he's a hypocrite and I'm just disappointed that it took us longer than it did to realize how on the take. Mitt Romney really is. So, so once again, he decided to take this opportunity in, in, in American history to exploit, you know, Donald Trump and his army instead of, as a, a good Republican should, go after, you know, a weakened Democrat candidate. But that's just not Mitt Romney. Let's go to the phone. All right. We got Breeze. Breeze, you are on the air. Yeah. I, you know, it just really amazes me the buffoons that we that we send to Washington and elect, and the buffoons that have been our presidents. But we must all be a bunch of damn buffoons. I mean, it just flabbergasts me. And I'm like you, kid. I don't see, I don't see where Trump. I just that, that just don't make sense to me that he's that high. And another thing that doesn't make sense to me, the Democrats put Reagan Biden because they thought that he could beat Trump. But didn't they already know that they were going to be able to daggle get 82 million votes or they weren't sure? I mean, they already had the thing set up for daggle. Whoever got the Democrat nomination, they already had the mail-in ballots. They already had the vote, the, the, the ballot harvesting. They already had that in place. The point I'm making is any Democrat buffoon would do exactly what Joe Biden did. Hell, you could get a half dozen or more, a hundred more from Florence County that would do everything Biden did. And another thing, couldn't a, a vice president, a 
our dad was a vice president. Don't you think between the two of us we can make uh, 10 or or $12 million legitimately, even if we are buffoons ourselves? I mean, none of this is making sense. And let's say they do throw Biden in jail. And let's say they do start or they impeach Biden. They probably won't throw him in jail. But let's always throw his son in jail. Well, the next Democrat that wins, who probably will win, will, will go ahead and pardon him. But how about all of the people that were part of just, I mean, who, how many people were willing to risk their careers to help Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? How what did they get paid? And you're only talking about so far 10, maybe 20 million. I mean, none of this makes a damn bit of sense to me, kid. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. You know, I've always wondered, um, I mean, I, I don't mind saying this. I mean, there, I don't think I do this much, but, but I'm a, I'm a former office holder and I don't play that card. I mean, I, I got, I got run out of office, so it didn't end wells, but, but I mean, it's still, I mean, you, you have a Rolodex unlike anybody else's. You've got contacts unlike anybody else's. I mean, serving in that world at that level. And I'm talking about U.S. Senator and Vice President. I mean, if you can't find something for you, I mean, if you are a sitting vice president of the United States and you can't legitimately find your kid a job, a legitimate job, a good paying job, um, then apparently people just don't take you that seriously. I'll give an example. There is a, there is, there is a, in the, in the finance industry, in the, in the state of Kentucky, there are a number of former Kentucky Wildcat basketball players that have done exceptionally well in the field of finance in the state of Kentucky. Does that surprise you, Josh? Mm-hmm. No, of course not. You know why? Because Big Blue's a big deal in Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky basketball is a big deal. So if Josh inherits a million dollars or Josh needs to get something financed at the bank and Josh is a Kentucky basketball fan and there's this Kentucky basketball player who's in that business, you're more than likely to give him a call. You know, if, if a friend says, hey, did you know – I mean, Rex Chapman was one. Rex Chapman was a great Kentucky Wildcat basketball player that is, you know, after his NBA career, started a legitimate finance business. Well, he's Rex Chapman. I mean, there's some benefit for being uh, a former Kentucky basketball player in the state of Kentucky. Um, so, so, as Bree said, I mean, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden must really be bad at business if they can't find legitimate opportunities w- without trafficking in peddling influence but but you know the difference is and and maybe i know more about this than most because i served in government what you think is a lot of money is not i mean in other words you know making a hundred thousand dollars a year making a hundred fifty thousand dollars a year hunter biden didn't want a job to make a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year hunter biden wanted to make that much a month i mean he wanted to make he was an entitled you know son of a senator son of a former vice president a sitting vice president now president of the United States, the son of the president can't make $200,000 a year. I mean, 99% of the people listening to my voice would jump up and down if they were making $200,000 a year. Joe Biden wants his kid to make that much every month, and then they're divvying it up. You know, uh, Jim's got to get some, and, uh, you know, the um, the former wife of Bo, the widow of Bo, and the former girlfriend of Hunter. I mean, she's got to be included in all of this, and it's, it's grift. I mean, it's just political thuggery is what it is. But, you know, maybe maybe I understand that a little better than most. Um, when, when I went into government, it was obvious to me. And, you know, what I thought was a lot of money really was not. 
And I mean, I can remember, I mean, I'll share this with you. When, when I got elected to county council in 2004, and I remember I didn't register to vote last 40. I, I knew very little about government. I was frustrated, angry about a situation in our family business. And I remember going to some of these events and we'd be, we'd eat restaurants nicer than any restaurant I'd ever eaten at. We would, you know, go on golf courses that I'd never gone on golf courses like that. And I'm probably a bad um, case study because I come from a, a very rural community and never, you know, was not around politics. Well, the next thing you know, um, I'm on a golf course that I never imagined I'd play. I'm eating at a restaurant that I never imagined I'd eat. And my family had done okay, but it wasn't my cup of tea, so to speak. So, so the next thing you know, um, everybody's wearing a Rolex, everybody's driving a Mercedes or BMW, and I ain't so damn sure what they do. I mean, I just remember kind of, you know, don't, and once again, I'm a, I'm a good old boy. I mean, I'll accept that. Uh, you know, some like it, some don't like it. I'm kind of a good old boy. So, so w- when I get in politics, I'm meeting at restaurants, I'm, I'm playing on golf courses, everybody's wearing a Rolex and a BMW. And I just remember thinking about what the hell's everybody do? I mean, nobody's doing anything. Well, they were. I mean, they, they were they were feeding at the trough of government, and, and they were getting us to allow them to feed at the trough of government, and it was unbelievably lucrative. I mean, in my world, nobody wore a Rolex, nobody drove a Mercedes and BMW, nobody played those golf courses, nobody ate at those restaurants, and I lived in a in a normal world. I mean, it wasn't you know. I, I mean, I come from the country, but but I'd been around people who'd made some money, and you know, and, and had access to live a life that they could choose to, but nobody did. But it, but it became so, and I, I remember thinking, so if it's nobody's money, it's anybody's money. If it is anybody's money, it's, uh, it's nobody's money. And I just think that if you're not careful, once that becomes a way of life, once you're in the Senate for as long as Biden was, your vice president, the families around that sort of interaction and transaction, I think it becomes somewhat of an entitlement. You know, I'm entitled to make $200,000 a month. I mean, the hardworking men and women of America that make $200,000 a year, God bless you. I mean, you've done well. But, but I, I'm a little different than you because my dad's in the Senate. My, my dad's a vice president. My dad's, my brother's a governor. My, you know, my sister-in-law married. You see where I'm headed? And there's this sense of entitlement. But I've always wondered, if you're a high-ranking, credible government official and, and, a, and a friend needs a job, there are legitimate ways to legitimately help that person get that job. You've got a friend in the banking sector. You've got a friend in, um, in the energy sector. You've got a friend in whatever um, sector of the economy that you can call and say, hey, I got this credible young man. I think he'll do you a good job. Would you give him an interview? More likely than not, they are because of who you are. And they know that at some point in time in their existence, they'll probably need government to say yes or no. And there's enormous value in that. But that was not good enough for the Bidens. I mean, they didn't want to earn the money. They wanted to shake you down for the money. And there's a difference that I don't think the public is that concerned that, that the, um, the son of a, a, an influential politician got a better job than your kid did. I mean, is it fair? No, but I think it's understandable. You know, he's the vice president and I'm not. You know, my kid wanted this job. His kid wanted that job. Wonder which kid's going to get this job. But that, there's, there, there's a degree of legitimacy there. I'm not saying it's fair, but, but the world ain't fair. But there's a degree of legitimacy there. But, but that's not what the Bides wanted to do. They wanted to shake down. They, they didn't want a, a kid to have a job paying 200 grand a year. They wanted to have a, a job that paid 200 grand a month, 300 grand a month. 
so they could pay this person in the family and that person in the family and wire money to this LLC and this offshore uh, account. 843-661-0937. Breeze touched on something else that I want to touch on because I read an article yesterday. He's talking about, you know, the, um, I, I guess the fortification of elections. Are we getting there or not? The Democrats, I mean, I, I know that Drew says we're catching up. Ah, I'm not sure. I'm just not so sure we are. Take a break. Back in a few. We're talking about playing checkers and playing chess. I'll show you what chess is, or I'll explain uh, why the Democrats win elections, even when their agendas are unpopular. I mean, the, the media runs interference for the Democrats. They don't hold their ideas accountable. I mean, they don't. They, they share a vision. Uh, 90% of the media is liberal. 90% of Democrat politicians are liberal. Um, that's just the nature of the arrangement. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. I wish it weren't, but it's just the way things are today. I don't know how to change that. I mean, in all honesty, I've accepted that to some degree as the way things are. The only hope that I find is the decentralization of media. And I'm talking about social media and the allowance of people to have, you know, their opinions out there. It's, it's a little bit like a, um, you know, a, um, a great talent doesn't have to be found anymore. I mean, they, they can have their own Twitter page. We, we see real talented people with Instagram accounts and TikTok accounts, and you're like, wow, I mean, that person is as good an actor or actress as, you know, the silver screen. They don't have to go audition and all these other, and they can monetize that to some degree. So the thing that keeps Obama up late at night, the decentralization of media, is the only chance we've got to negate the advantage the Democrats have by being so in lockstep with the, the, uh, the media. I mean, the, the mainstream media is going to carry the Democrats' water. That's just the way it is. Whine, cry, complain. I do it. You do it. We should always do it. But it ain't changing. Now, but the New York Times ain't going to find Jesus tomorrow and decide, man, I mean, we're, we've been unfair to these Republicans and these conservatives and these small government libertarians. Let's see the light. You know, let, let's be fair-minded anymore. But I'll tell you where I give the Democrats credit. They play for keeps. They mm-hmm. understand what's at stake, and they do whatever it takes to win. No, but they just do. The rules are there are no rules. Well, when the rules are there are no rules, you better play by the rules better than anybody, and the Republicans still honor a, a certain rude and cold and ethic of, or code, and ethic of, of politicking and campaigning, and we got to stop that. we got to understand what we're up against. I'll give you an example. Um, the Democrats are trying today to take control of the United States Postal Service Board of Governors. Why does that matter? I mean, who cares who's in charge of the USPS? There are nine members. I think today there are five Democrats and four Republicans, but the five Democrats aren't that progressive. They aren't that liberal. Uh, Three are, but two are fairly moderate. Um, They've been there a long time. The governor of Michigan, the governor of Arizona, um, the governor of Pennsylvania, I'm trying to think of another, some of these swing states, they're trying their best to force um, more liberal governors onto the United States Postal Service Board um, because they want all-male elections. Mm-hmm. Now, they, you know, they don't want people showing up on Election Day. They believe, the Democrats believe, that there are 50 million voters out there that if given the opportunity to put a ballot in their hand and be in control of the Postal Service, they would, they would win these elections in these swing states. I mean, they're just they're playing at a greater complexity than we are. I mean, give them credit. 
And the, the art of winning elections is not about hearts and minds. It's not about election day. It's not about organized campaigning. I think Drew McKissick agreed with me Thursday when I said, Drew, that's not about policy, but rather strategy. What is the strategy to generate turnout? And um, Zuckerberg in 2020 spent $450 million. They've got about $1.2 billion sitting on go. They've spent about $81 million thus far trying to win or trying to put more progressives on this seat of the United States Postal Service Governing Board. And they believe that gives them control of the Postal Service. Um, the, um, the Postal Workers Union were very involved in this. Some of them are all liberal Democrats. I mean, the, the, these Postal Worker Unions, they ain't voting for Republicans, but they are trying their best in Michigan to adopt all-male elections. Uh, in Arizona, they're trying to adopt all-male elections. In Michigan, uh, the Democrat Secretary of State, uh, Jocelyn Benson, has proposed legislation. I mean, she's not a legislator, but she's a statewide official, and she is saying, um, you know, that that all-male elections is more fair, more equitable, more inclusive. Remember, we talked about the, um, the inclusive and diverse nature of America, um, and they want to, in Pennsylvania, change the certification process um, to put Democrats more in charge of who gets certified. So they're already laying the groundwork. I mean, they, they're already laying the groundwork. It's called New Deal Forum. I mean, they, they've got all these organizations that are unbelievably well-funded. But, I mean, that's the um, I mean, that's the extreme they go to to try and win elections. National Vote at Home Institute is being funded by Democrat activists, liberal activists. About 30% of the money has come from California. I mean, California ain't a bastion for conservative ideology. I mean, that's not where the conservative thought leaders come from. But they've got this lady named Amber McReynolds, who is, um, I guess, she's formerly of National Vote at Home Institute, but now she is running the campaign to try and take control of the United States Postal Service Board of Governors. And we're running around going, well, I mean, we went to that church and got 100 people signed up, and we went over here and got 75. I mean, that matters. There's no doubt about it. Grassroots will always matter to some degree. But, but we better stop believing that our policies, that because our policies are better than theirs, it's going to translate into success at the, at the ballot box. It's not. I mean, it's simply not. They, I mean, in, in Michigan and Arizona, they've got legislation proposed that allows felons to vote, that lowers the threshold of signature verification from 70 to 40%. Remember, we did that in COVID. And we, um, I mean, in other words, if Josh signs his name, he's not going to sign it exactly the same way both times. But it had to be 70%. There's this, there's this computer model out there, kind of a, um, an algorithm that says, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's 70% likely that's Josh's signature. I mean, he signed it on Monday, signed again on Friday. They don't look exactly the same, but there's, I mean, it meets the threshold. Eh, close enough. Uh, and th- they want to lower that to 40%. That means there's less than a 50% chance that Josh signed his name Monday and signed it again on, a, and that's signature verification. That they're they're trying to change that. So while we're playing checkers, and we're worried about you know um, CRT and curriculum in schools, and you know we're doing the good old fashioned hard work and heavy lifting of American politics. I mean they're trying to take over the Postal Service Board. I mean there are five Democrats. They're disappointed in two of the Democrats because they won't go along with some of these um some of these shenanigans of which gives them more control 
over the process, but the National Vote at Home Institute is something I would encourage you. I mean, Google it. National Vote at Home Institute. It's it's uh, formerly led by a lady named Amber McReynolds, who has now gone to work in, I mean, she's basically the lead consultant for seizing control of the U.S. Postal Service. And the reason they want the Postal Service to be in their control, they'll adopt policies that, where, where do the drop boxes go? You know, when do we pick the mail up? Um, <laughs> what, what mail gets thrown away and what mail doesn't? What mail gets collected twice and what mail doesn't? I mean, we've got to go down this road, guys, because the Democrats have convinced me, maybe not you, Josh, they've convinced me that they're willing to do anything it takes to win. Well, if I could say, I think that that has been obvious to me, especially since 2020, where they like like to address something Bree said about how, you know, why bother with Biden when they knew they were going to cheat? I, I think they were planning on cheating, but they they over, uh, underestimated the amount of individuals not in the government willing to help. Because I saw videos online of mailmen burning ballots voted for Trump because, you know, you had to mark it on the outside of the envelope who you were voting for. I mean, what's the point of that? Well, here, here you go. You ready? Um, New Deal. Some of their priorities. This is the group that Amber McReynolds ran. Now she's trying to be in charge. She's trying to it's a hostile takeover. I mean, it would be like RJR Nabisco, you know, barbarians at the gate. Remember the book and movie they did about the, um, uh, you know, KKR and all those. I mean, anyway, it's, um, I mean, it's high level. I'm not saying it's corrupt. I'm not saying they're breaking laws. They will do anything it takes to win. And at New Deal, they're recommending, and this is what they'll recommend if they take control of the United States Postal Service uh, Board of Governors, they will remember the, um, Remember the mail, excuse me, the drop boxes that were so prevalent during COVID? You know, mm-hmm. people were afraid to stand in line. They're afraid to go to the gymnasium, afraid to go to the church, afraid to go to the community center. But they would go to the drop box, and they put these drop boxes in random. I mean, they want that to be a permanent feature. I mean, if they if they take control of the United States Postal Service Board, uh, in other words, if the liberals, if Amber McReynolds is successful, and she gets the one's a former, um, a former State House member from Michigan, who has been all about, you know, um, signature verification, lessening, um, but, but you know, the New Deal. I'm not talking about FDR. It's 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 new, D-E-A-L in all caps, uh, that they're recommending. I mean, their board has already offered as one of their priorities the permanent feature of drop boxes. Um, I mean, they want to turn the Postal Service into a mail-in collection machine. I mean, that's what they want to do. Drop boxes will be everywhere. But there'll be a drop box on every street corner. Um, it'll be endorsed by the United States Postal Service. Um, they put this in writing. I mean, this is not a conservative radio show host offering up a conspiracy theory. There's, they, um, they want to weaken signature matching requirements on absentee ballots uh, because here's their word. You ready? Discriminate against voters who already face other obstacles to vote. I mean, that's their that's their reasoning. In other words, if Josh's signature is 40% as accurate on Monday as it was Friday, that's good enough for them. Forget the 70%. Uh, it, it could be, you know, looks like an 8-year-old signed it one day and, you know, a 78-year-old signed it the next day, but if it beats that 40% threshold, then that's good enough on some of these absentee ballots because they want, you know, we, we've discriminated against these voters long enough, and it's time they have, you know, a chance. Um, And then 
the the board of governors, if these ballots have to be cured, in other words, if it doesn't meet the 40%, if it's obvious Josh signed on Monday and somebody else signed on Friday, it doesn't meet the threshold, they have a curing process. Guess who appoints the panel that cures the ballots? The USPS Board of Governors. Well, I mean, if you've got a liberal United States Postal Service Board of Governors, what sort of panel do you think you're going to have? You're going to have a liberal ballot curing panel with liberal ballot curing laws. And you're going to have people that, but they have no clue whether they voted or not. And they believe if they thought there was a million voters out there, they wouldn't be that consumed by it. But they believe there's 50 million voters out there to be had. 50 million voters that they believe um, if given the opportunity, they could get a ballot in their hand and some way, somehow get that ballot turned in and cured in favor of um, the Democrats. So guys, I'm, this is what the Republicans are up against. And we have a, and we've got Mitt Romney writing articles in the op-ed or op-eds in the Wall Street Journal about how bad Trump is. Now, but this is, to me, the biggest threat to democracy today is whether or not we're going to have uh, fair elections. I mean, are, are we going to have monitored uh, elections where votes are legitimate, or are we going to have a free-for-all where felons vote, um, signature verification doesn't matter, um, the liberals have taken over the USPS Board of Governors, out of that came a, um, a curing panel, uh, you got to believe that if liberals run the board, they'll damn sure run uh, the curing panels. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We have Mike calling from Darlington. Mike, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Uh, Ken, you have hit on the core of the problem there. And I, I just uh, hope and pray that uh, Miss uh, Rona Romney McDaniel will uh, – follow up on that and is following up on it because it is a strategy problem and if we don't put enough energy in uh combating the this influx of voters uh, there's no hope we're done and i don't know how you get people mobilized to uh take this seriously and to take action it's going to take a lot of work to catch up because they've got a head start on us a really uh, sizable lead, I would say. Mike, I'm afraid they're further ahead now than they were the night of the election in 2020. I mean, I understand what Drew's saying, and I applaud Drew for making it a priority, but but I just think we're we're playing checkers and they're playing chess in voter turnout. I mean, I, I just think we still we hang on to this notion, and it's honorable, and it's America. We have better ideas. You know, people will vote for the better ideas, but, but I'm arguing 10, 15, maybe 20 million people, they don't even know they're voting. I mean, their ballots are being harvested. You know, um, they're, they're being filled out, signed. Their signatures may match. They may not match. That's the point I think we've got to understand what we're doing. It's not about policy and ideas any longer. It's about strategizing how to get ballots turned in and counted. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. So the Democrats have put... Um, not all of their resources, but they put a an extreme amount of their resources into building this big, gigantic ballot harvesting machine that can register, that can turn out. I mean, there were it's not tens of millions of voters each cycle, um, and we're still in the um, the policy and idea mode. Let's go to the phone. 
We have Rujan calling from Darlington. Rujan, you are on the air. Hey, Ken. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> uh, uh, what, what did Joseph Stalin say? And I'll keep it short. Joseph Stalin says it's not who casts the vote, it's who counts the vote. And if they can take over the, the, uh, the mechanism that counts the vote, we're toast. We're toast. And, I mean, you know, I've been saying, you know, you can't – this, this is not a gentleman's war. It's not a gentleman's war. It's a, it's, a, it's a guerrilla war, actually. I mean, you've got to do the things that you need to do. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, um, I was in New York this past weekend. And, you know, you hear about, you know, the people on the street that are taking the drugs and, and crowding up the streets. I saw it personally. They want to, to just do everything they can to make America, you know, just a third world country so they can take it over, make it a banana republic. So we, we, we're going to have to be nasty, mean, hateful, and nasty, and socially unacceptable in order to, to compete in these games. And, and, and that's it, you know. I, I've been saying it for years. I've been saying it for years and years and years and years, and it's frustrating. This is not a gentleman's war. you got to get nasty. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. If you want to learn more, I mean, there's an article, The American Conservative. I read it every single day, and I'm quoting some of this um, statistics and data and, and opinions from there. Let me give you the, the name of the story. It's called The Left Elections Fortification in 2024. But it, it, it refers you to other articles. I've read a good bit about the Brennan Center and what they're doing. I had not read as much about the National Vote at Home Institute, but this taking over of the United States Postal Service Board of Governors is what they're ultimately after, and they want to build this big, gigantic ballot harvesting machine and control, you know, who gets the mail, who sends the mail. 843-661-0937. Take a break back in just 843-661-0937. As we continue through the hot days of summer, um, Rev and I were talking. Rev's not here. Rev's down in Florida with his mom. Um, he left, I think, Friday afternoon, got some information about his mom that was not very uplifting and encouraging. I'll just leave it there, and I'll let him express as much of that as he chooses. But he's down in Florida with his mom, um, you know, doing whatever needs to be done to make sure she is as taken care of as she possibly can, and he'll be back um, whenever he gets back is all I'll say. So it's just Josh and I, uh, no Royal Rev of radio um, this morning. We have with us Fox News Radio's Tanya J. Powers in our nation's capital. Tanya, good morning. How are you? Well, good morning. I'm actually from in New York City today. Okay, you're you're in New York City. I'm sorry. What did I say? Did I say our nation's capital? capital? Yeah, I, 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 mm -hmm. that's so – I mean, I, I, I played broadcaster when I was little – and I just like saying our nation's capital, so I guess it's well. Stuck. I mean, you're you're technically not wrong if you if you take it back a few you know a few years. You do, I but mean, but see, was, I can't make you yeah. refer to that every time you come on the show. I can't misspeak every <laughs> but, time uh, about that very known part of DC is now our nation's <laughs> capital. Okay, let's get on to serious yeah. things, and let's do this as seriously as we can. Um, I'm not geeky. I'm not technologically savvy. Um, I am as lost as you could imagine in the world that I have to inhabit today. 
but I do remember when Prince changed his name and became the artist formerly known as Prince, because you and I have talked a lot about rock and roll and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So, so, so did Twitter change its name, or did they rebrand themselves as X? Well, it's a rebranding. Um, this is something that Elon Musk has, has said, that he's going to retire the bird logo on Twitter and eventually the Twitter name as he you know, overhauls the company, basically. Um, it is now, according to you know, what it says on the official account, uh, on Monday the blue Twitter bird was replaced on the official account and the site with the black and white X. And it kind of goes along with uh, Elon Musk's uh, early payment processing company, X.com, as well as the recently named parent company, Twitter, which is X Holdings. So, Tanya, is w- mm-hmm. so, so today when I tweet how good the Republicans are and how bad the Democrats are, am I tweeting or am I Xing? That is the $64,000 question that I've been asked several times, and I don't have a good answer to it either. Uh, there are a lot of people who are wondering the same thing. You know, like, what do you call there, – there's a lot of questions. I mean, it's been less than a year. Remember, he just bought Twitter for $44 billion with a B in October. It feels like it's been a lot longer than that. Um, but he just – he's had this less than a year. Why would you buy a recognizable brand and then gut the employees and then change it to something else and then rework it to where it's not just a social media platform. It's also going to be uh, something where you can make payments and instant messaging and things like that. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just a really interesting, uh, I guess, progression to see, you know, from the company that he bought now to, you know, the overhauling that is going on at this point. It, and now the, and the name is just, you know, the most recent part of that. So do what what do the smart people believe he's up to? I mean I'm not smart so I can't comment on that. But but what do some of those who try to understand what Elon Musk is up to with Twitter? I mean have you heard anybody say anything that that you go like okay that that makes a little sense because I don't. I mean I, I can't make heads or tails. The only thing I can say Tanya is if I were worth 100 billion dollars, I would do what I wanted to as well whether it made any sense at all. But but are there are there people who try to figure out what's happening? Have they offered up reasonable proposals that you've heard? I mean, I'm sure there are, are people who have speculated on this, but at this point, you know, I mean, it, that's that's really all it is. And as you mentioned, you know, when you have that much money, you can buy whatever you want. You can do what you want with it. Um, you know, which he, that's exa- and that's exactly what's what's happening. You know, there are you know obviously rivals to it already. Threads is one of the ones that has come up. That is owned by Meta. Uh, which owns Facebook and Instagram. Threads attracted a more than 100 million users in less than a week. Um, now, you know, its active users have fallen off a little bit after that, but, you know, that's kind of, I would think, to be expected with a social media platform. Everybody, you know, jumps on there at first, and then it sort of, you know, shakes out as to, okay, is this something that's good? they're going to be, you know, a part of daily? Do they like the platform? Are they used to something else? Are they used to Instagram or TikTok or, or Twitter or whatever, you know, and like that better? Um, but there are, you know, the, the chaos of what's going on at Twitter has kind of left them open for, you know, competitors uh, and rivals like that. So, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to watch and see how Threads does and if it becomes like the new Twitter or, or whatever. Well explained. It's Elon's world. We just live in it, Tanya. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time.
Thank you. Yeah, you know, I've, I've got a theory. You, you ready? Uh, a listener to the show and I have talked about this. Uh, back when he bought it and we wondered what is the, um, I mean, wh- how do you monetize? Where do you make money? What if Elon Musk is building a platform? Um, Josh doesn't want to be a National Review subscriber because he doesn't want to pay six ninety nine a month. Doesn't want to be a Wall Street Journal subscriber because he doesn't want to pay thirty dollars a month, twenty eight ninety nine, whatever it costs for some of the. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post are more expensive than anybody else. But I mean, you got to pay to subscribe and get some of these paywalls or get behind some of these paywalls. What if Josh saw a story that he was interested in and would pay thirty cent? And townhall.com got 15 of the 30 and Twitter got the other 15 or X got the other, the other 15. In other words, it was a, you know, uh, Josh doesn't go to town hall, but it does go to Twitter. And when he's uh, perusing Twitter, uh, he, he finds a story that he finds interesting and he's willing to pay 30 cent and he's got an Apple account and, you know, they, they dock him for 30 cent. He reads the story, but he's not. You know, he's not out of thirty-two ninety-nine. It's only fifty cent or forty cent or whatever that whatever that number is. Obviously, Twitter has more users than some of the websites, right? I mean, it would have more than any website in the world, probably. So, if you've got a story at the Wall Street Journal and you can't read it because you're not a subscriber, but you can go to Twitter and pay fifty cent and read that story, are you inclined to do that? And Twitter gets a percentage of that fifty cent, and I know it's it. I mean, but but it's it's compounding interest. I mean, how many people? I mean, if he puts a story out there, and he and the Wall Street Journal have a deal, I mean, the Wall Street Journal would be crazy not to do that, right? Because I mean, they they've got a, a universe of subscribers this big. The Twitter followers are humongous. I mean, it's global. It's worldwide. It exposes their brand to far more eyes and ears. And I, once again, I don't know that that's what Elon's doing, but I think there's some potential there. Um, for allowing some of these subscriber-based digital enterprises to put singular products on Twitter and Josh have to purchase, not the $32.99 a month subscription, but, but let's say there were two articles a month that Josh liked and he paid a dollar. I mean, that's, that's a bottle of water. You know what I mean? That's, that's half a bottle of water, really. I think a bottle of water is two bucks. So, um, so, so, you know, Josh sees an article about, you know, um, Biden or Trump or whomever. That he finds interesting, doesn't want to pay thirty two ninety nine, but he goes to Twitter and he pays fifty cent and he's able to read that one single article. I mean, Twitter gets money that they wouldn't have gotten, right? I mean, and the Wall Street Journal gets money that they would not have um have gotten. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. We have Jay calling from Nichols. Jay, you are on the air. Yeah, you've been talking about playing chess and checkers, and I got a couple things for you. What's the uh, Democrats going to do the next time they have control of the House, the Senate, and the uh, presidency? <sighs> I mean, they're, they're going to do a lot of things. They're going to do a lot of things in the name of progressive America. Well, one, they're going to make D.C. a state. They're going to pack the Supreme Court. They're going to make Puerto Rico a state. That's going to tie up the Senate in Democrat control forever because there's no way that— we'll, the Republicans will be able to get through that. All they've got to do is go pick off a couple of the purple states, and then they'll be able to control the House. Sooner or later, they're going to get a House and a Senate that's veto-proof. So even if we get a Republican governor or Republican president in, they're going to pass whatever they want, and there ain't nothing we can do to stop it. 
So you're they're saying thinking, they're going to abolish the filibuster and everything. I mean, the 60 vote in the Senate is going by the wayside, pack the court. I mean, I understand what you're saying. You're, you're saying they're going for the gusto. I mean, they're, they're swinging for the fences, so to speak. If the stars align, they get control of the House, Senate, the White House. They got, you know, the power or they've got, you know, a governor who will sign into law what a majority says. You think they'll do away with the filibuster and the 60-vote threshold? You bet. Okay. They've, they've already tried to do it, and they got slowed down. You know, well, once they get control again, there's going to be nothing that's going to stop them. But, but Jay, is go- it, 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 it in the saving grace? I mean, I understand what you're saying, but in the saving grace that we have a court today in America, Supreme Court, that if some of these cases were referred as to whether they're constitutional or not, this court will side with the Constitution. Today it is. If they get control of the House, then the, they're going to pack the court. And then there will be no way that anything they do will be termed unconstitutional. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it. I mean, that's an extreme scenario. I would imagine that somebody like Bernie Sanders or Nancy Pelosi one of these five-star liberals have given an opportunity. They'd probably swing for the fence and try some of those things. Uh, there have been some Democrats, not a lot, been some Democrats that say, no, the um, the constitutional order has to remain in place. Nine members of the court uh, were not packing the court. I mean, I've heard Biden say uh, he's reluctant to pack the court. Now, now, you know, take it for what it's worth. I'm, I'm with Jay. If given an opportunity to swing for the fence or not, in modern, in recent memory, they've always – um, swung for the fence, saying, you know, should the goal of one political party be to make the other obsolete? I mean, it's a little bit like Steve Spurrier would get accused of running the score up, Josh. You know what Spurrier would always say? Ain't my job to stop my boys. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I'm going to put yeah. a third-string quarterback and tell him not to try hard. No, I mean, it's your job to stop him. I'm, I'm putting my third stringer in, but I'm not going to tell him not to try hard. I mean, Spurrier was was – I mean, I think there's some some parallels there. In other words, we we agree, or I think we agree, that the the best days in America are when there are two equal and opposite forces. You've got. I mean, in my world, I'd rather have everybody believe like I believe, but I accept that that's not reality. That's probably not in any of our best interests. I mean, I don't need to be king, you know, because I could be wrong on some of these things. We need these checks and balances. We need these. You know, the, the, these reactions and counter-reactions, these policies and negating of policies. So, so, so I'm someone who believes that America at its best and most effectively governed is when there are two reasonable parties who reasonably disagree, who reasonably compromise, and out of that comes reasonable policy. But that, that historically, I think that's when we are at our best. But, but once again, if you've got one political party that has bought into socialism, and, you know, not defining a woman as a woman, how do you compromise? Where do you go from there? So if a party adopts these extreme views, and I think that's very extreme. I mean, I think socialism in America is extreme. 50% of Democrat primary voters believe socialism is a better way to manage our economy than capitalism. That's a pretty extreme view as far as I'm concerned. We had a recent nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court by a Democrat president who refused to answer what a the definition of a woman was. That's a pretty extreme view as far as I'm concerned. So as much as I'd love to think about the, the, this nostalgia of politics, 
You've got um, you've got Sam Nunn, uh, you know, a reasonable Democrat. You've got, I mean, give me a reasonable Republican. You've got, I mean, the, the you know, I'm trying to think of um, I mean, to me, to me, Rand Paul's a reason a reasonable uh, Republican, but to a lot of others, he wouldn't be. Um, that Chuck Grassley would be kind of a reasonable old school Republican. Um, they're not light years apart of one another. They believe in capitalism, that they believe in the Constitution, that they believe in the virtues of America. Uh, they believe in the amendments. They believe in the Bill of Rights. They believe, you see where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. So, so that's their foundational underpinning. I mean, uh, none as, may have been left of center, but, but, but he believed that his left of center had to be balanced with some of the founding documents of our country and, and what the courts have said over the years. And, and now, and I mean, to me personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a right-leaning Republican, but, but I, I don't know how you debate or compromise with someone who doesn't know what the definition of a woman is or believes that socialism is better for America than capitalism is or believes that you know the, the marginal tax rate of 66% is not high enough. It needs to be 80% or 80. I don't know how to reason with that person. I don't know how to compromise with that person. I can't sell my soul. You know, if, if I'm, if I'm saying the highest marginal rate needs to be 20% and you're saying it needs to be 90%, I mean, do we go to 60%? Is that reasonable? Not in my world. It's not, it's nowhere near reasonable. The most reasonable compromise to me would be for me to go from 20 to 25. And, and the liberal Democrat would laugh in my face if I thought the highest marginal tax rates would be 25%. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the lack of compromise is because of the positions that the Democrats have staked out as, you know, the normal of the party. I mean, this is kind of where, where the party is. Uh, hey, I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat. Let's have a debate about the world and the country and, and the body politic, okay? Uh, a man has a penis, a woman has a vagina. Well, I don't think that's true. Where, where do we go from there, Josh? I mean, I mean, where do, where do we go when we have that? Fam- we, we can't even agree on that. Well, I think, you know, the Republicans, I know it, this is, sounds kind of condescending, but I think Repu- modern-day Republicans have their feet planted firmly in the past, where it's kind of like you're saying, ideally, there would be this two-party system where— you know, like some guys have some views, some guys have other views, but they're relatively similar. We're way beyond that now. I mean, you have people denying what a woman is. And so what a man you believe is. that the Republican Party should adapt and yes. accept that that's where normal is today? No, no, no. Not not that the Democrats. Well, let me ask you a question. As a, Repu- as a young Republican, mm-hmm. how do you react or respond when a stuck-in-the-past Republican says, I can't even go there. I can't even get close to that. Um, I mean, if, if, a, if a Democrat comes to Josh, young Republican, mm-hmm. and you say, hey, I'm a Republican, I'm, I'm fairly conservative, and they say, Josh, I don't believe a man's a man and a woman's a woman. I believe in gender dysphoria. I don't believe it's mental illness. I believe in gender fluidity and gender, you know, um, the, I believe people are born. I mean, how do, you, how do you address that? How do you sit down and and go any further down the political road with that person? Well, if I'm in a situation where a Democratic person, like a Democrat person, was willing to have that conversation with me, I would try to convince them to come around to my point of view. But if they were belligerent, if they were— What if they're not belligerent? What if they're very respectful, very cordial, very smart, very informed, but they believe that— gender dysphoria is legitimate it's normal um 
it's not abnormal for a man to believe he's a woman and a woman to believe he's a man. And there are real, no real sexes. I mean, it's, um, it's in the abstract. It's in the unknown. I mean, it's in the vast universe of what things that, that we don't have the, 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 the affirmative answer to. I mean, hi, see, that's where I'm saying if, I mean, I can argue with you about tax rates if you're at 70 and I'm at 20. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's, I mean, I'd love to end up closer to 20 than 70, but I think those are reasonable debates. Um, someone making over a million dollars a year. Right. What should that effective marginal tax rate be? I mean, I don't know what it should be. I don't think it should be 70, but maybe it needs to be 30, maybe 35, maybe 40, maybe 45 in income over a million dollars. But I don't know how to go any further down the road when you say that, that I don't believe a woman's a woman and I don't believe a man's a man. Where, where do we go from there? I mean, how do we, I mean, if, that, if that's the crux of your, your existence, I mean, if you're going to die on that cross, I mean, it, to, it's hard for me to even talk taxes with you or education or infrastructure because I think you're weird. I mean, I, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just being honest. I'm being bluntly honest. I don't have the time of day much. But, but what you're saying is Republicans need to understand that that's not as unusual. No, 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 no. I'm saying it is very unusual. And I'm, I'm just kind of talking like if I were hypothetically in politics and I were debating my Democratic rival, or Democrat rival, I I would say, then I would just be like, well, you're delusional. And I would appeal to my voters, which I believe are more rational. I Because I think at that point, it's like you're saying, it goes beyond, well, what about 20% taxes or 30 or but, 70? But, are, so, so you, but you believe that voters are rational? No. Not all of them. So if voters are irrational— because the opposite of rational is irrational. If voters are irrational, I mean, we know some are. I don't know what percentage are irrational. But it, but if your point is voters are irrational, voters may accept gender dysphoria as normal. Voters may accept gender fluidity as normal. Voters may accept. I mean, rational people, there's no way a rational person accepts um, or can't say a woman. I mean, we got chromosomal science. I mean, there, there are a lot of indicators there that we've accepted as truisms throughout the history of the world, so to speak. I mean, you know, you got a, a XY to YY, you know, or XX and uh, you see where I'm headed. I mean, there's a, there's a scientific definition for what a woman and man are. But, but if someone doesn't believe that, how do you debate them on some of these other issues that are far less, far less defined um, or true or, or matter of fact? Hey, we got to take a break, but I want to come back and continue this conversation. 843-661-0937. I want to get to jammed up as we like to say and too far behind we'll be back in a minute see josh i believe that one of the biggest challenges the republican party has in america today the the republican party stands in in places that are perceived by modern woke america as old-fashioned yeah i mean it, it, that, that, that's the way things were things are different today uh, in, in the old days, a woman was a woman, and a man was a man, and capitalism did work. And, and I think the the struggle with the party today in in you know creating momentum with young people is the majority of Americans are afraid to go against the grain, and and pop culture, so to speak, is so influenced by liberal Democrats. Let me say that again: pop culture is so influenced by liberal Democrats, and young people care about the perception or their, how they're perceived in relation to pop culture. So if pop culture says, for forget science, I mean, forget, you know, chromosomes, 
pop culture says that a woman is not necessarily a woman and a man is not necessarily a man and people make it over a million dollars a year should pay 75 or 80 or 90 percent of their income you know after the million dollars they make pop culture says that's accepted and young people say man i don't want to go against the grain i mean i i don't want to do that i mean it's a lot easier to go along and get along than it is to stand my ground on these principles that that i believe in that's that's uh, i mean that's problematic if you're a republican now if you're a little bit older I don't want to say and wiser because I'm not sure I'm wiser. I know I'm older, but I'm more comfortable going against the grain. I mean, the things I believe in have been firmly established in my DNA. I've tried to pass those along to my kids. Uh, I've succeeded in some places and I've not been so successful in others. But I think as you get older, you're, 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 you're more inclined to go against the grain. When you're younger, it's to your advantage to not. You know, right. I, I want to go along, man. I want that promotion. I want that job. I want to be accepted. I want to be a member of that club. And pop culture says, you know, that um, that that a woman being a woman and a man being a man is a little bit old fashioned. And you know how those old Republicans are. And I think that is a big dilemma and a big problem with the conservative party today. How does it modernize these truisms that are anchors and tenets? of our of our political thought and party and and ideology and eventually policy and i mean that that's you know i don't know the answer to that but but i do believe that that a lot of young americans are influenced far more by pop culture than they are something in their bones in other words my dad said this is true but pop culture kind of sort of disagrees with my dad And, and i love my dad and i trust my dad to shoot me straight but, man, pop culture makes my life a whole lot more fun, being accepted in pop culture and, and the things the Democrats believe in because they control pop culture. They control academia. They control the media. They control the majority of administrative agencies within government. They control Hollywood. Uh, the majority of musicians uh, outside of Jason Aldean are fairly, are, are fairly liberal. Uh, it's just it, it, young people are being inundated with, with a worldview that, that, that may or may not be consistent with what they were taught right and wrong. But, but once again, if you're out there living your life and, and pop culture makes it a lot more ah, fun and exciting and accepting to live your life, that, that's where I think the Republicans, I mean, that, that's a dilemma that they have to say grace over and figure out. Eight fourth. You, you want to jump in here? I was, and then yeah, we'll go to the call. It's, it's going to say, is I, I see this all the time where like, the Democratic Party and and all this woke liberalism is what's perceived as the norm now. Like it's what per, is perceived as cool, and and I see Republicans all the time trying to catch up to well, that. I mean, but 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 once again, the, the majority of news disseminated to the consuming public is filtered by whom? Liberal Democrats. Exactly. I mean, they, you know, they bless it or not, it goes on the air. It doesn't. It gets written or it doesn't. I mean, the New York Times, Washington Post. I mean, t- Twitter would be different. I mean, it's kind of a free-for-all. It's a, you know, it's a smorgasbord of whatever anybody uh, believes. And I think there's a way to earn back the trust of young Americans. But, but it, it's going to be, it's going to take a, 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 a deftly crafted message and messengers. Let's go to the phone. We have Joe from Hartsville. Joe, you are on the air. Yeah, good morning, guys. It's great. Love it when Josh gets in this thing. He brings a lot to you. There, Ken. Uh, talk about taxes. You set tax rates at what at what you want. What kind of government do you want? You want one that tells you 
what time to get up, what to eat for breakfast, what you can use to drive to work, how you cook your food, whether or not you can drive 50 miles, whether you can work in this job or that job. If you, if you want to be told what to do from cradle to grave, the Democrats are, are, are trying to do it. So they're trying to take away our, our small engines, do away with welders and oh, there's nothing they won't do and they they continuously lie because look at the Georgia voting law. They said that was Jim Crow two point Nothing further from the truth, but they didn't care. They cost the state of Georgia or Atlanta, the city, about $200 million. They said the don't say gay bill was wrong. There's nothing in the bill that says gay. Now they're talking about the, the African-American history, talks about how great slavery was. Even the, the black scholars that wrote the thing said that Kamala Harris, the first time she said it, it was a a mistruth, and the second time it was a lie, and it was immediate. I mean, they they pushed back on the truth. Like I've said before, there are truths. Water will wet you and fire will burn, and that's what you have to treat the federal government as. You want it as a campfire, as a convenience that you can control, or do you want it to be a forest fire that burns down everything? And you set tax law to keep that in check, I, you know, take it back to where it was before and let the government do what it's supposed to do, you know, protect our rights, you know, govern by the consent of the governed and protect the rights and the Bill of Rights. And other than that, we're taking, we're supposed to take care of each other. The churches take care of the, the, the people closest to the needs, know what's needed. Churches do a lot more good and they have a lot less waste than the federal government does because look at the the fraud, waste, and abuse that goes out. Every time you have a program, you know, you got to spend $100 billion administering a trillion-dollar program. And there, there are truths that you can't get by. You cannot keep spending more money than what you got because what won't continue won't continue. I mean, that's simple fact of nature. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Joe brought up three particular um, uh, policies and, and debates we're having about policy, or really not policy, but it would be uh, reflective of the education system in America, uh, the all-star game, Jim Crow 2.0. But I'll get Josh in here again. So, so Jim Crow 2.0, don't say gay, and the African-American history that's kind of front and center today, Kamala Harris taking a line out of a, I think, a 1,220-page uh, educational document, and she said it says that slaves learned certain skills while being enslaved. Um, I mean, that's true. I mean, if you want to take it out of context, I mean, slavery was bl- brutal. It was unfair. It was an abomination. I mean, I, I've said all that before, but but to suggest that slaves didn't learn certain things that made them better, you know, after they were out of slavery or, or, or made their lives a little more productive, I mean, that I think you can say that. I mean, I think you can absolutely say that slavery was an abomination. No human being has a right to own another human being, but while enslaved, 
uh, certain African-Americans learned skills that served them well, uh, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, that's controversial. Of course it is. You're talking about slavery and race. But I think Kamala Harris was being just fundamentally dishonest. But, I mean, she's a dishonest person. She's a politician. The majority of politicians practice in the art of dishonesty. But but I want to go back to something Joe said. Jim Crow 2.0, don't say gay. Uh, African-American history. Who has defined what those three issues mean? The media. I mean, academia, historians, um, those who have a loud voice. The, the number of people who are listening to talk radio, watching Fox News, are trivial, in all honesty. I mean, it's a small share. Um, you know, we get caught up in these little universes. If I go to Williams-Brice Stadium on a Saturday night, I would think every American in the, you know, in the country is a college football fan. But then I leave the stadium, and there are far more people not at the game than there are. And, and, and sometimes we get caught up in this, you know, I guess to some degree irrational enthusiasm that, that so many people are paying all this attention. And, and of course, people know that Jim Crow 2.0 uh, means what it means. And of course, don't say gay is not done. And of course, no. I mean, that, you know, young people, by and large, Josh, mm-hmm. are fed a narrative reflective of pop culture. And the, the world of pop culture is controlled by conservative white men? No. But it's liberal. I mean, it, it's very liberal. It's very progressive. And and I think to believe that young people are going to make an effort to be as informed as Joe is, or even I am, or even Josh is, I think it's wishful thinking. I was going to say, and I want to run this by you because we may disagree on this point. That's fine. I think that what we've seen in the past couple of years is the Democrats are doubling down on what they believe and want to achieve, while Republicans are trying to get us back to what we had before. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think I think at this point, you know, Ron DeSantis implements, I think, reasonable education things targeted at independence. And then the left portrays it as the most extreme thing it could possibly be anyway. So at this point, my opinion is, why not just do that? Why Like, they're going to call you homophobic transphobic anyway so why not just go go all in well i mean the the, the republican party has a messaging problem it, it exactly it's, it's loudest voices that's why i'm so enthusiastic about vivek ramaswamy he is a charismatic right. well-spoken articulate young person who doesn't look like most republicans smoking a cigar at the stag lounge at the country club you know historically that crowd has run the world the, the world's very different today I mean, you know, it, it's a very different America today. And I and, and I struggle with, okay, how far down the entertainment road am I willing to go? I mean, I've got these values. I've got these things that I believe in, that they're elemental in my life. And I think they're important for the country. But, but I accept that, you know, the world's different today. So how far off course am I willing to go to get some folks in the boat with me? Because it's about addition. I've got this course. And I think I understand the North Star. But, but a lot of other people don't. They've been fed things that I think are inconsistent with the truth. But pop culture is an enormous influence in American society. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. Hour number four on a Tuesday morning, 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. We have Tony calling from Hartsville. Tony, you're on the air. Good morning, gentlemen. Hope y'all are having a great day. Hey, Tony, how are you? Good, thank you. I just wanted to make a comment, and I hope I hurt no one's feelings, but with 
on content of what Bert said, everyone has the right to do what they want to, be it gay or whatever. But at the same time, don't put a Christian down for what they believe in. Thank you so much. Y'all have a blessed day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know, one of the central complaints that I've heard in my political life, my political life began in 2004. So for roughly 20 years, I've been in office or around politics. I mean, you know, in one shape or way, shape or form, uh, I've, I've been involved in a few campaigns since I left politics. The one complaint that I've heard over and over and over again about Republicans, Josh, and you can jump in here if you will, is that they like to tell you what you can do and what you can't do and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And it really and truly is based on kind of a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying all policy is spiritual. I'm certainly not insisting that. But but there is a that there is a. I mean, we we know that a higher percentage of Republicans profess a belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ than Democrats. I didn't say Democrats are heathens, but I mean the the statistics clearly show that the Republican Party is a more religious oriented party. Christianity is the dominant religion in that affiliation, so to speak. Um, and, 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 you know, Christians can be perceived as a bit judgmental. I mean, I'm a Christian. I try not to be judgmental, but, but I, I have to maintain this biblical worldview. And if, if Scripture says something, it's not, I mean, I don't have the authority to usurp Scripture, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, I be, if I have a biblical worldview and I don't like the way the Bible says something about, I mean, I, I don't have the right to change it. I mean, it's, you don't amend the Bible. I got a Jewish friend of mine who says the New Testament's the sequel. You know, I mean, you know, they believe in the Old Testament. They don't believe that Jesus is divine. You know, um, they, they accept Christ as a prophet, uh, an unbelievable example of how humanity is to treat a fellow man. But, um, but, but I've heard that since my involvement in politics, that the the Republican Party not only wants, wants not only ascribes to a certain belief and and worldview. It, 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 it almost is overbearing in trying to convince you to ascribe uh, to that worldview. And, and I'll say this, uh, I want non-Christians and non-believers to become Republicans. I mean, I do. You know, we're, we're a nation where, like it or not, a smaller percentage of people profess to be Christians than 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. if you're going to pin your hopes on the gospel— and, and once again, that's where personal and political converge. I mean, that's kind of a, um, I mean, that's a complicated place. I, I can't check my biblical worldview at the door. I mean, when I was an office holder, it wasn't my job to legislate morality, but my morality and ethic was based on the Bible. So how can I make a judgment on morality and ethic without bringing that biblical worldview into the chamber with me, whether I was a county council member or or lieutenant governor, but I can't force that upon you. I can't, I can't make you be a believer in, in, you know, what I believe in, but I want you to affiliate with my political party. I want you to be a part of believing in, in limited government, more responsibility, I mean, excuse me, personal liberties and freedoms. And, you know, I mean, that, that, that's, that's kind of a complicated place to land. And I'm not saying the Republican party is guilty of that. I'm just saying the majority of people that I bump into that aren't, you know, um, aren't very politically oriented or motivated. They tell me, hey, man, the biggest problem I got with your party, they have these beliefs and these worldviews, 
and they're adamant about forcing me to kind of ascribe to A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And I think we've got to be careful of that. You, 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 it doesn't mean you're forsaking what you believe in. But, but you've accepted that others don't believe that. Others just don't buy and do, you know, um, the divinity of Jesus or the, the gospel story and, you know, the Old and New Testament biblical worldview. And that's fine. I mean, I think that's okay. Um, politics is about winning elections. We're not running a church. We're running a government. Let's go to the phone. We have David in the PD. David, you are on the air. Hey, good morning, Josh. Hey, Ken, just, hey, just believe in a creator. Uh, that makes pretty good sense, doesn't it? Uh, hey, July 25th, 2019, this is the fourth year anniversary of the Trump-Zelensky phone call. Uh, and I would say this, man, that is the ultimate Democrat power play. And I'm using play as far as like Neil Simon and this and that, because if you remember that, you remember the cast of characters from that? Uh, I guess that was Alexander Bentman, Colonel Bentman. He was the whistleblower. And we had the Adam Schiff hearings, uh, and then they had the parade of professors, and I think there was a Yovanovitch and all this. I mean, they they ran that thing up, and all he was doing was just asking, hey, what was Joe Biden doing over there? Uh those years uh, with his son, this, that. Now, unfortunately, Trump, with his mindset, he said was the greatest phone call of all time. And I think the Democrats, they harped on the fact that Biden was a candidate. So he was, Trump was asking about what he did as a vice president. If you go back to those days, this is kind of interesting how history is. If you, you remember when Kamala Harris said, I was that little girl at the busing. You remember that one? I do. In that mm-hmm. debate. And I give these Democrats credit, man. They, I mean, that was before that phone call. So they, they are great opportunists. And, man, you and this Postal Service deal, that, that, that is great because think about it. Um, when, when my father was old and feeble, I used to have to read to him. Uh, letters and stuff, and if something had a signature, I would, he'd say, son, go ahead and sign it for me. Well, I could sign it for him. Well, I had his, you know. I didn't feel guilty about that. But these people, if if you take a $10 million that you could spend on ads or you can give $50 a vote to 200,000 voters, what would you do? So they're doing that, and this is – I'll leave you at this, man. I always think about the Democrats use this term, will of the voter, will of the voter. So if I walk up to somebody and then I'm talking to them as, as a ballot harvester, and they say, yeah, I don't want that Trump back in, all of a sudden I become the power of attorney. I can. It, it don't take much to forge a signature, especially if somebody lets you do it, but – Anyway, um, they, they're doing a great job, and I'm, you're doing a great job because you're mentioning this. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. One of the things that concerns me most, and we're jumping around here, but, but we're in the same orbit, is when I hear election officials talk about aggressively countering misinformation. I mean, that, that, that's alarming to me. That's the one thing that I, when, I, when I read that in a story, 
I'll grab my glasses and I'll really get into it because I want to know. Um, we talked about New Deal, not FDR, but the New Deal. Th- this organization that is trying to basically take over the United States Postal Service Board of Governors by putting activist progressives on and, and, and you know, um, turning it into the biggest. You'll, you'll have drop boxes on every corner. Um, they'll be in charge of mail-in ballot. That's what they eventually want. I mean, they, they, they want, you know, more and more mail-in ballots. It's, uh, I mean, every study I've ever seen said it's the least secure of all ways to vote people into power, but that's what uh, the Democrats want to take advantage of. But but when you read some of the um, ah, some of the criteria of the New Deal, so, some of the uh, some of the priorities, some of the examples of which they would um, advocate for the aggressively countering misinformation is is the scariest of all, and they want um, elected officials forming relationships with the journalist to make sure um, that we're supplying people with facts and not misinformation. That, I mean, that, that's, that's staggering and, and alarming to me. I mean, if, if we are going to allow the cathedral, because that's what we're talking about here, we're, we're talking about progressive liberals who have basically taken over the majority of universities in America. I mean, that's kind of a known fact, but the data shows that. The overwhelming majority of people in uh, powerful positions at major universities in America uh, are liberal. I've got no idea. I mean, Dr. Bold will be here tomorrow. He's normally here on Tuesday. He had a scheduling conflict. He'll be here uh, tomorrow at 8 o'clock. He would be, I don't want to say the exception, but he would be a exception. Um, but, but the majority, and I'm talking about on average, the majority of influential voices on college campuses are liberal. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. The overwhelming majority of influential voices in the media are liberal. I mean, you got Tucker Carlson, uh, you got Fox News, you got talk radio. I get that. I mean, I, and I'm not saying it's a total monolith, but it's overwhelmingly liberal. The New York Times, the Washington Post, um, the, the writers at the Wall Street Journal are probably more centrist, but they're certainly not not conservative. NBC, ABC, CBS News. I mean, you know, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly progressive in nature. So if we're going to allow that group of people to decide what's misinformation and not, how factual are they going to be? How biased are they going to be? How one-sided? How uh, interested in the truth are they? Are they really going to be? Talking about colleges, I found this interesting. I read something uh, a week or so ago. The American Community Project, I mean, that, that's one of these think tanks that does a lot of data gathering and, and, and research. Uh, 171 Cities and counties in America are deemed college towns. Um, they have a high percentage of college students, college graduates, college professors, college administrators. There are 171 designated college towns in America. Um, since 2000, 38 have flipped from red to blue. Seven have flipped from blue to red. Um, there are about 30 million people in these 171 college towns. And once again, it could be the city and the county. And there's criteria. It's um, it's it's kind of a, it, it's pretty, it, it's interesting criteria. This city has, I'll give you an example. Austin, Texas is not one. I mean, it has one of the largest universities in America, University of Texas, but it has a lot of other features. So, so you, you would expect Austin, Texas to be a college town. It's not. 
because once again, got a very diverse economy, very complicated economy. But there are 171 cities that meet the criteria, or the county meets the criteria designated as a college town. Um, about 30 million voters in those college towns in 2000, Gore won those 30 million voters 48 to 47 percent. In 2020, Biden won 55 to 44 percent. So we've had an enormous liberal leaning of college towns. Now, now you can say, yeah, but I mean, that could be job creation. That could be a lot of it could be. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying I know this is all about the influence a college has, but 171 cities and counties designated as college towns, 30 million voters. They were about dead even in 2000. Uh, Gore 48, Bush 47. In 2020, 55 to 44%. And that translates Joe Biden gets 16.5 million votes. Donald Trump got 13.2. So Trump loses those college towns by about 3.5 million votes. I mean, that's about the difference in uh, the election. You know, at least 60% of the difference in, in the election. That's just kind of interesting to me. So, so we know the influence that college is having. How, how do we temper that? How, how do we engage young people on some of the ideas and, and some of the principles we believe in? Um, young people are impressionable, but they're not stupid. I mean, they're not stupid. I mean, young people are, are impressionable, no doubt. They're beginning to form their worldviews, that they're beginning to accept, you know, this is true and that not true, and I'm skeptical of this, I'm not as skeptical of that. But, but you know, when, when I hear aggressively counter misinformation, I hear brainwash, I hear indoctrination. And, and we, I mean, that, that's scary. And when you begin suggesting that elected officials form relationships with journalists to prevent, you know, um, the misinformation and, and to make sure facts are um, factual, well, I mean, what happened in COVID? What's happening in Ukraine? In the last two weeks, how many times have you heard Ukraine offensive? It ain't working, folks. I mean, it, while we were leading up to the Ukraine offensive, that's all we heard, right? The fact is, if we equip Ukraine, they can win this war. Now, for two weeks, I mean, I've read multiple accounts about it's not working as planned. The media just shuts down. So they're guilty by, I mean, they're, 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 they're misinforming by omission. I mean, they're not telling you a lie, but they're not telling you that what they told you three weeks ago is now proven to be untrue. Now, now it may work. I mean, that something may change. But right now, the Ukrainian offensive is not working like we were told a month ago it was going to work if only Ukraine could get the billions of dollars and the military armaments and the cluster bombs and all, and all those other sorts of things. And and I just, I am, I am unbelievably concerned when I hear aggressively counter misinformation and I hear elected officials want to forge relationships with journalists. Wow. I mean, everybody should be deeply concerned and alarmed uh, by that. Let's take a call. Somebody's there. We have Joe calling from Florence. Joe, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Ken. Uh, I'm a college professor, but it's uh, my second career. And, and I wanted to make a comment on what you were talking about based on my first career. Uh, I was a marketing executive for Avon Products in New York City. And New York City uh, was kind of an unusual place in that the people who worked at Avon 
were really not representative of the Avon ladies, the 500,000 Avon ladies and 2 million uh, Avon customers, kind of like the way uh, the, the, the artists who write songs in the big cities aren't from small towns. But one of the problems Avon had, which made their stock go from like 120 to 19, was that a lot of the people who were in New York City were very wealthy and they were designing products that they would themselves use. The problem is they were totally out of touch with the lady in Iowa who's trying to raise four kids on $30,000 a year. You know, they were making 60000 at the time. Their husbands were making 60000 And they were out of touch with their customer. And I think that is a common problem. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that people are malicious as much as there's a common human nature problem where our ego thinks that we're right and everyone would be better off if they thought like us. Uh, these executives really thought the ladies in Iowa would be better off if they had these $40 mascaras, which they couldn't afford. And, and in my university experience, you've got a lot of PhDs who are really smart and really trained. And I think they're out of touch with the 19-year-old college student who's just trying to figure out how to get his first job. Um, I think that's true of, of politics as well. Um, people who are in the positions of power got there without necessarily representing their readers or their students or their constituents. And, and that's why I think we get a lot of the stuff we do from the media, from the academy, and uh, from, from government. So anyways, having had two 20-year careers and seeing the same human nature mistakes played out in different uh, circumstances i thought i'd just chime in on that that's an interesting perspective thank you for the call and appreciate the contribution i, I you know i agree with the majority of that I, I i you know when i try to give the people who are in power the benefit of the doubt that's my that's my kind of go-to place that they they genuinely don't understand the people that they're responsible for um, governing over the elites let's use elites i mean that's kind of a generic term but let's just use that the cultural elites, the, the economic elites, the political elites, um, do they really understand? Isn't that kind of sort of what happened with the, with the um, GOP? I mean, the, the, the Republican hierarchy just absolutely lost touch with who the base was, who these normal, average, everyday people are trying their best to get by and live their lives and go on a vacation a year and get their kid educated and kind of forge a better way forward. Um were they trying to keep their thumb on those people or did they genuinely lose touch with who those people were and what sort of, you know, plots in life they were um, dealing with? That, that's an interest. And I don't, I don't disagree with that. And once again, if, if I give the elites a little bit of breathing room, so to speak, that's where I land. They just don't know any better. It's so unrelatable to them and where they live. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Josh had something to add. Yeah, so I wanted to respond to Joe a little bit and what he said about you know him being a college professor and the kind of disconnect um, that's going on in America right now. I do want to say I don't. I I agree with I agree with you and I agree with Joe, but he said something. He he was talking about how everyone believes they're right and everyone believes if everyone thought like them things would be better and that that's kind of a problem and i agree with the premise 
But at the end of the day, I think we do have to acknowledge that at, I mean, of course, everyone believes they're right. But at the end of the day, someone is more right than everyone else. So while I agree with Joe that we, we need to introspect, we need to analyze our own beliefs, just because most people don't, and, and he is or we are, doesn't mean that we're wrong. And that's kind of what I wanted to say in response okay, to Joe. Okay, but let, let's, let's take a word. Let, let's write a word down. Truth. Mm-hmm. Is it true that marginal tax rate should be 20%? Is it true that marginal tax rate should be 70%? Is it true that we should spend 6% of our budget on military and defense? Is it true that we should you know, appropriate this percentage of revenue to education and infrastructure. No. I mean, none of that's true. I mean, it's it's an opinion. I mean, it, you know, you defend, you have a belief that, you know, the, the highest marginal tax rate in America should be 36%. I, I'm not saying, just, just stick with me, Josh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so the majority of politics is not based in truth. I mean, it's an interpretation of what you believe to be in the best interest of the country. I think the country's better when the private sector keeps more of its money. I think the private sector does a better job of allocating resources and, and, and the velocity of money is better. I think the economy uh, does better. But, but, but that's not a true. I mean, it, you know, th- there's a lot of evidence that shows that to be the case. But, but I think when we start monkeying around with, uh, I mean, I think it began with marriage. I mean, it, it, it's true. I mean, it, it's, it's true that marriage has been an unbelievably beneficial arrangement or covenant for civilization for as long as, you know, civilization's been around. Maybe, I mean, since Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. That, that's true. I mean, that's anchored in truth. That There's nothing about tax policy anchored in truth. I mean, we have these academic debates. We have these philosophical arguments. Um, you know, the, the, the big government liberal would say, okay, I'll give you that the economy grows a little better when we have, uh, you know, lower taxes and lax regulation, but look at what happens to people who fall through the cracks. The government has to be that safety net. That's when you get into the squishiness and, you know, but, but, but I think a, a woman is a woman and a man is a man is a scientific truth. And I think when we start monkeying around with truth, there is no guardrail. I mean, there is no place we want, we aren't willing to go. I mean, I just never imagined, I always believed as a limited government conservative, I'd be encountered by people who believed fundamentally different than I did about tax rates and regulation. And I accepted that. I mean, I, you know, very smart and capable people disagree with me. On, on regulation versus deregulation or tax rates. One of, I mean, and, and that is a very fair debate because I don't have the truth. But, I mean, th- th- there's some scientific truth in marriage. There's some scientific truth in, in sexism. I mean, there's chromosomal science that says, you know, the difference in a man and a woman is one letter. And, but, but once we start redefining that, th- then I think here's what I'm trying to argue. When, when politics starts redefining what the word truth means, it's no holes barred. I mean, there is no constraint. There is no guardrail. There is no, no limit to where government won't go. I mean, if government empowers itself to redefine, you know, what we've accepted as true since the beginning of time, I mean, once we were smart enough to, um, to research chromosomes, 
And we found out there's a difference in a man and a woman. It's one letter. It's one chromosome. And, and, and all of a sudden now a group of politicians are politically motivated, uh, you know, uh, power hungry, whatever you, I mean, they're, they're saying, no, there's not, I mean, that's activism. But, 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 and, and I, and I, once again, I think we can honestly debate some of these things that aren't true, but, but we're not doing that any longer. We're, we're debating things that historically and scientifically have been known uh, to be true. I think climate change would be one of the most interesting examples. Um, it is true that the climate changes. It is true that we had an ice age. It, it, it is true that we probably in some way, shape, or form can affect the climate by CO2 emitted and, and industrialization. But, but th- th- there's, a, there's a debate there that, that is very entailed, very sophisticated, and we're not having that. And instead, we're having someone like me being labeled uh, a denier and someone who spreads misinformation. Nobody knows what the truth is when it relates to the only thing we know to be true is the climate changes. I mean, that, that, that is all we know. That is the established truth. Deniers, skeptics, believers from John Kerry to, to the biggest denier in the history of mankind about the climate. I mean, they, they all accept that the, the climate changing is a truth. I mean, that, that is empirically true. There's no denying that reality. I argue that's all we know to be true. We speculate, we research, we investigate, we explore. I mean, isn't that the, the art of science? I mean, isn't yeah. science kind of an exploration for things we, we aren't sure about? Can we become more sure? Do, do we know a little more? I mean, are we a little more sure now about when life begins in the womb? Yeah. I mean, I think technology and 4D ultrasounds and MRI, I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of things that we've uh, innovated. In our, in our economy that, that allow people to believe, you know, it, it's, it's likelier now than ever before that life begins. I mean, I think it begins at conception, but, but I understand that people disagree with that. But I think it's hard to look at a, you know, whatever we call embryo in, in one of these modern and technologically advanced uh, medical devices. I think it's hard to look and see fingers and toes and, you know, a little, little movement and, and say that's not life. I mean, that's hard for me to fathom. Um, but, but I, I just think we're operating the, the body politic because of our indoctrination. I mean, I, and I'm guilty of this. I mean, I, I'm guilty of believing things to be true. And, and I, and I know they're not, I mean, I, you know, I believe, I mean, the, the way I say it, I believe the economy does better when the government's smaller. That's what I believe. And, and, but, but I, that, that's not a truth. I mean, the Bible doesn't say it, you, you know, the Magna Carta doesn't say it. You see where I'm headed, right? And, and and we've allowed ourselves to dig in on these things that that we believe in, as if there's no credible alternate opinion. And there's a lot of credible alternate opinions to what I believe. I mean, I I, I didn't write the book on what's right and wrong. I mean, I'm I'm wrong a lot about a lot of things. There there are things I fundamentally believe in, and there are things I'm willing to fight for. But but you know, it goes back to this um. The lack of a debate, the, the lack of a serious conversation. I, and I go back to how do I debate someone who doesn't believe that a man is a man and a woman's a woman? I mean, if we can't establish that as a truth, then, then where, where are the guardrails? Where won't you go with this conversation or, or this debate? 843 is our number. I mean, you, you want to jump in here? Yeah, yeah like you, I, I do want to say 
I, I agree with you. And it, and it kind of gets into scary territory because as you're saying this, I'm thinking to myself, if, if, if someone migrates from Mexico and wants to become an American citizen and, you know, they do it legally, they have to pass a test in, uh, about American history and the American legal system to be able to become a citizen and therefore have the right to vote. And, and, I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, if they have to just, if they have to pass a test on American history and, and now all this stuff is coming up, if you, can't, if you can't answer the question, what is a man correctly, maybe you shouldn't well, have that right. And, you know? and, and, and if you think of this, so we're having a battle. So in, in one corner, you've got good government. And I think even liberals will agree that the, the idea or concept of good government requires people knowing what the hell they're voting for or on or about or, or, or the, the interest in. I mean, I understand spin and political campaigns. I'm great and he's not. You know, I mean, I, I get all that. I mean, that, that, that's spin mastering. I mean, that, that's political campaigning 101. But, but I think fundamentally that, that's kind of um, – if we're going to have a great nation, it's going to require people going to vote on things they understand. Mm-hmm. M- maybe not the nuances, but at least conceptually. I mean, I understand conceptually what Josh believes in. And I understand conceptually uh, wh- wh- where the nation is and where I think it should head. But, w- but, but we're giving into the notion of inclusiveness, that, that America's greatness is in diversity and inclusive and equality. It's not. I mean, America's great in it. Go- man governing fellow man requires a commitment. It requires a commitment of not only the people we trust to govern, but, but the ones who are being governed. You've got to be literate. You've got to have some simple or, or complicated or sophisticated understanding of what you're voting for and why you're voting for this person. And, and when you look at liberals in America today, and, and I'll, throw a, I'll throw a barb their way, they want 50 million people who don't know their ass from third base to vote for the president of the United States. Exactly. I mean, is that, is that in the best interest of the country? I mean, it's inclusive. I mean, it creates more diversity. But does it really and truly solidify our government? Does it make the government better when 50 million people who have no interest at all in voting are, are, are corralled and harvested and, and coerced into voting? I mean, do we really believe that that makes America better? I'm one of the few people who will say on the record, I think the fewer people in America who vote, the better the country is. I mean, that, that, that's, that, I that's like kind it. of anti-democratic, anti-American. I do. I believe that the fewer people that we allow to cast a ballot in favor of one candidate, one party or another, the better off the country will be. Because those people have made a commitment to be somewhat literate. They may be wrong, but they, they, they made a commitment to be somewhat literate and understanding, okay, I'm a voter. I'm voting for a governor, a senator, a house member, a county council member, a mayor, a president, because I think that person will look after the best interests of this experiment in man governing fellow man. The Democrats are telling you, no, that's not what we want. We want to forsake the literacy of the electorate in the name of inclusiveness and diversity. The more inclusive and the more diverse the electorate are, uh, the better this country is. And pop culture has, has said that. I mean, pop culture has said they're right. You know, the voter suppression, uh, you know, uh, you know how those Republicans are. They don't want certain people to vote. Well, I'll go on the record. I don't want certain people to vote. It has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with ethnicity, nothing to do with religion. It has all about whether you know what you're voting on or not. 
Exactly. And and you know, but but in America today, we've we've decided that that is more important. The electorate know what they're voting on than how diverse or inclusive we are in who we allow to cast ballots. There are morons in this country who choose to be morons, and the Democrats do everything they can to get them to the poll, to cast a ballot in their party's favor, and that's not in the best interest of a functioning republic. It's just not. I'm sorry, it's not. Nobody can can argue we're better off if people who vote don't know what they're voting for. Now, now the counter-argument would be, it doesn't matter who you vote for, they're not going to do what they say anyway. I mean, I get that. that that's, a, that's a fair point. I mean, it doesn't matter if you vote for Republicans or Democrats. They, they say one thing, they, they run ads one thing, they send you mailers of one thing, and then they go to Washington and do something else. But if the electorate were literate, if the electorate were informed, we wouldn't vote them back in again. I mean, if, if, if Josh sent me a mailer and came to my house and knocked on my door and said, hey, Ken, uh, give me a shot to go to Washington, and here's what I'll do. And if I remain literate and I remain involved and I remain informed, and Josh comes back and knocks on my door in two or four or six years, I'll say, Josh, you didn't do anything you said you were going to do, man. You, you, don't, you don't get my vote again. That, that's an informed electorate. That's, an illiter- that's a literate electorate, and that's what is essential in a representative republic. Take a break. Back in just a few. So they're floating a story now. Biden's dog has bit seven people in four months. It's the dog's fault. The dog <laughs> ate the homework, right? I mean, all these Russian, or excuse me, all these foreign nationals and and entail business dealings, it's the dog. I mean, it's the dog's fault. The dog is out of control. Um, why do you keep a dog that bites seven people in the past four months? And who did they bite? I mean, is it is it seven people from Ukraine, seven people from China, seven people from you know uh, Wall Street, seven people from BlackRock? That's what that's what I know. I'm in the I'm in the rumor spreading business. Um, Josh, I want to congratulate Josh. He's really done. Um, a great job at not just introducing himself to our listeners, but um, but but expressing his opinions in, in, in a very succinct and understandable way. Um, I gave him one Thank piece you. of advice during the break. I'll share this publicly because I think there's beauty in um, letting people know what we t- I told Josh. You will get caught flat-footed. I mean, something will come up one day that you know nothing about or caught completely off guard. The, the, the beauty of doing this job is to never sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when you're flat-footed and you don't know and you're caught off guard and you didn't see that one coming, you just got to figure out a, a, almost an instantaneous reaction, spontaneous reaction to not sound like it. Um, and, and I guess having run for office, there, there have been many, many, many times in my life I've been called flat-footed, but you can't sound like it. Right, yeah, and, and I got to say I congratulate you because because there's been you know people people bring stuff up like when jeff calls in sometimes he'll say well have you heard this have you heard this and your response is always well not always but sometimes it's like i haven't but i'll look into it yeah and i think that's a good response well, I mean, I, I think, I, you know jeff makes the show better um, i agree and you know dissenting opinions williams makes the show better i know some of you get frustrated and i we get emails and text messages and and Facebook posts, why do you let that guy on the air? I mean, this is a conservative radio show. Well, I mean, let, let's 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 defend conservatism. I mean, let's defend right. limited government. Let's defend some of the things we believe in. It's easy to circle the wagons and, you know, and kind of put everybody inside and say, okay, I've got your back and you've got mine. I think the best way to convince people of what you believe in is to venture out uh, in, the, in, the, in the great unknown and, and you know, 
I mean, you've got to have made a commitment. Josh and I were talking about elections. I mean, to me, the best election consists of people who have proven that they take their citizenship seriously. Yep. It, it's, it's, a, it's an obligation. It's a responsibility. Uh, you know, when, when I go vote for a president, it's an obligation and a responsibility that I've got to take to some degree seriously. Um, you know, uh, putting a ballot in the mail, sending it to someone who never asked for it, knocking on that door and asking for that ballot back, and the person says, man, I don't vote. But will you? Can I help you? Um, that's not, I mean, that's not good for a republic. It's certainly not good for democracy, but it's kind of where we are. And, you know, fight fire with fire is, is what I say today. I wish it weren't the case. I wish we did have a civics test that required people to have some literacy about our government and what they're voting on behalf of. Um, but we don't. And the courts have spoken. One man, one vote. Everybody uh, is entitled if they do certain things to cast a ballot. Josh has got kind of an interesting theory, but he doesn't have time to explain it today. We'll hold that for tomorrow. And um, but but he's got a um, you know, if you're not able to run for president, should you be able to vote for president? We'll talk tomorrow. Enjoy your day.